welcome into another episode of Hatter Chatter, the podcast presented by Insight Credit Union. I'm your host, Ricky Hazel, and I'm joined today by Stetson Hatter's football coach, Roger Hughes. Welcome in, Roger. Hey, how you doing, Ricky? I'm doing great. So how are you spending your downtime now? This is normally a planning time of year. Football spring practice is over. You're doing scouting. You're doing recruiting. Uh, I assume you're still doing a lot of recruiting. Yeah, well, I mean, we are. And uh, what's happening is we're probably further along in the evaluation process because rather than going out to high schools now, what we're doing is we're watching all the tape, verifying transcripts, that type stuff. So we're getting kind of all the background stuff that normally we did when we went to high schools. We're just doing that at home. And then the other thing that we did a lot of is alumni receptions at this time. And that's probably what I miss the most of having to stay home is the interaction with our alumni, because I think one of the things that we have here are very successful. Uh, very focused and very driven uh, alumni base. And I think we have the basis of a terrific network. And I think my time in the Ivy League really showed me what a great university network can do, not only to promote the university and make it better, but also for opportunities for your graduates. And it's still all about uh, giving those kids an opportunity to take advantage of the the opportunities that they get. And and so usually if we can get our alumni energized to do that, I think that's the next step for our program. And we're getting there. For example, uh, one of our players who's graduating this year, Peter Katz, was looking for an opportunity in San Diego. I made a call to an alum. He's going to hire him. That's great. I mean, and that's how the alumni network should work. We had an alumni, <coughs> excuse me, alumni reception Atlanta last year where two former Stetson baseball players, one's been very successful in the financial world. One's been a very successful banker. The banker was starting a new bank, and all of a sudden, now this guy, as they did not know each other prior to the event, now this person's his number one investor in his new bank. That's how the network should work. And so uh, we're trying to do some things to maintain our relationships with phone calls, notes, and then we actually had a what I call hat chats, where we reached out to alumni and tried to get them to come in. And we had two experts, Jim Haskins, who's the vice president of the NHL, uh, uh, in charge of all their marketing and, and licensing. He was on about how they handled the, the work stoppage back in 2006, I think, when the, when the NHL went on strike. And then we had another guy in Atlanta who's in the financial world talking about how to maintain your discipline and maintain your emotions through a very a big time of crisis. So uh, we can't actually go out and interact with people, but it doesn't mean we can't, we can't have to stop interacting. I know this is the time of year also where you do a lot of team building with uh, in terms of uh, your captain's classes and and a lot of the things that you've done in the past to build the culture of the program. How have you managed staying in touch with your players and, and keeping that culture alive? Well, each week, the NC2A has allowed us uh, four hours of video time with our players. And so each position coach has carved out times during the week where they're going to meet with their players. And what I do is I tune into every meeting. And so during that time, I can, once once the meeting is over, okay, fellas, everything going okay, studies-wise, who needs a tutor, who is thinking about taking a class pass-fail rather than for the grade. Uh, it gives me an opportunity every week to kind of touch them, so to speak. And, and what I'm finding, Ricky, is, you know, that time on the video is still as important to me as that time on the practice field. And and as you know, that's why we do what we do, to, to help young men actually improve themselves and give them get them to where they need to be going forward. So... So we're doing those kinds of things uh, with a video and, and making sure I have a captain's meeting this morning, this afternoon at six o'clock. We're going to try to do some cross pollination with uh, a captain of a certain position group, uh, spending time with a position group on the other side of the ball, because 
we found through our captain's interviews this year that uh, guys kind of looked at like, like Jameson Kraske, they felt he was a defensive captain, not a captain. Or they felt that Gavin was an offensive captain last year, but not a defensive captain. So we're going to try to do more of the offense and defensive captains cross-pollinating with the other side of the ball uh, so that we can do exactly what you said, continue to build a culture and continue to maintain what we have. I think that the uh, the way you choose your captains is so unique and, and interesting. Explain a little bit about the process you go through, the, the classes you teach, and the whole process of, of selecting your captains. Well, it really actually developed out of a, a mistake I made a long time ago. And when we first started the program back in 2012, essentially was our first practice year, you know, we had we had all freshmen. And I totally underestimated the power of having an upper class. Because when you think about it, we only get about 20 hours a week with the players, but they get a lot more time with each other. And at that time, that's when the upperclassmen sit in and say, tell the freshmen, okay, this is how we do this. This is how we act at the cafeteria. This is how we uh, handle ourselves when we're out in the social life. We didn't have it. I mistakenly thought that that would just, that leadership would just, that maturity would just develop on its own. And we got into year three of the program, and, and I really am a firm believer that the more player-driven a team can be, the more success you're going to have. The less coach-driven that it is, the better. And so really year three, everything was progressing. We, were, we won two games the first year, we won five games the second year, and everything's progressing just like it should. And so I thought the team mistakenly was ready for that leadership. And we got about halfway through the season, and things didn't go exactly the way we wanted. Uh, it gives you a true test of character when you start going through adversity. And then it became a situation where the captains that had been elected, which we normally just had the players elect the captains, they weren't leading and they weren't being followed. And about halfway through the year, we had a very toxic meeting and it was, it was, it was pretty direct and, and voices were raised. And, and essentially at that time, I realized that I had to take the leadership back and that's what we did. And so at that point in time, I decided I'm never going to have captains elected again, that I always have to do a better job of teaching leadership, promoting the culture. And so we started at that time, uh, captains now have to apply for the job and they have a few requirements. They have to do a resume, get three letters of recommendation. Uh, they have to go interview a leader in the field. It could be any field that they want to and ask a battery of questions that uh, how does he, how does that person lead? What do they look for? All those types of things. And then they also have to take a leadership class that I teach every spring and two times a week. It's not, it's not easy. I mean, they're up at seven o'clock in the morning and if they miss one class, they're out, they're late for one class or out. And, and so through that each year we take a different book and essentially uh, the first year was extreme ownership. And that's really what we base our culture on. If you remember the, movie, The American Sniper, Chris Kyle was the sniper. Well, his commanding officer, Jocko Wilnick and Leif Babin, I guess two officers, wrote this book, How Navy Seals Lead and Win. In our sport, because of the size and the numbers, it's much more militaristic than maybe other sports just from an organizational standpoint. And so as I read through this book, I thought, wow, this, this is really something special. And, and I just kind of came across it during during my recruiting time, which I'm on the plane a lot, so I have plenty of time to do it. So that's how we set things up. And what I do is I have uh, this year we had 39 kids in the class, which is about half of our team at that time, which is which is cool. That's a lot huge. of them are taking yeah. it just to get that experience. Sure. But um, so so each we each year we've done a different book, uh, and it's a book that I feel our team needs. Uh, last year our book was 
um, Why the Best of the Best by Kevin Eastman, who is an NBA uh, coach, general manager. And, and so we did It's Your Ship, where uh, a captain took the worst ship in the Navy, the Benefold, to becoming the best performing ship. So what we do in this, in this class is um, I teach the first couple chapters, and then each person or team of two people take the next chapter and teach it to the team in that class. And we get to review some of the things that we're looking for in our culture. We, we, when we go out and we interview these leaders, we come back and say, okay, are there any changes we need to make in the characteristics we want in our captains? And frankly, the characteristics we want in our team. And it, and it forces those kids because most of our kids probably aren't going to play in the NFL. They have to set up an interview cold call. They have to go interview people. They have to do their resume so that they have everything done when they graduate to go out for jobs. But more importantly, it gives us a different perspective as, and it makes people understand leadership, leadership, you know, it doesn't matter where it is. Leadership has all the characteristics, whether you're in the army or, or you're running a food bank, for example. Um, so then the next step in the process, once we select our captains, they have to go through an interview process. And during that time, I have a, a colonel from the uh, ROTC program come over. I usually have an administrator come over. Uh, Coach Wotesk and myself, we do a, like a military promotion board, and they have to come in and, and interview for the job. Based on that, we select our captains. And then everyone who took the class is now their lieutenants. They're in the leadership class. So because when you're really managing people, you can only handle about eight to 10 reliably. And since our numbers are about 130 right now, we need more leaders within that group so they can manage our group. In the fall, then, what happens is every newcoming freshman or transfer gets a copy of this extreme ownership book. They get a study guide that I have developed for it. And they're assigned a mentor at their position. And it's a mentor's job to make sure that that freshman or newcomer has his um, study guide filled out when we report the first day. They're responsible, the mentors are responsible to make sure that that person is learning the offense, learning the defense, learning special teams, so that we can acclimate them into our culture in our program and try to get them as productive as we can be. And then we actually go through that same, the, the book we use in the spring is the same book that I hand out to everybody in the fall and the leadership class now teaches the team this time in the fall. So what it does, it I believe culture is something that in our business can change very quickly because you're losing 25% of your team all the time right. and you have new people coming in. And if you don't teach them that, nurture it, uh, make sure you protect it, uh, culture can implode from the inside. And so we try to do everything we can with, with the spring review with our current players and then a re-emphasis of that in the fall. And, and I found that rather than me getting up and lecturing or talking about it, when the players are teaching each other, they just, they just, uh, it resonates a lot more with them. I think it, they, they start to own it a lot more. And I think it's made, it's made the whole difference in our team over the last three years. Insight Credit Union is a proud partner of Stetson University Athletics. Insight has been bringing better banking to Central Florida for nearly 85 years. Insight Credit Union is your local go-to for lower rates on auto and other loans, credit cards, and more. Insight Credit Union and you, better together. So who did you wind up choosing as your captains for this year? And you would, you would ask me that. I got a senior moment. Um, we, and what intangibles did they bring to the table to, to earn that? Well, well, a couple things. I'm, I'm looking for represent, representation of the team. It's got to be someone that I can trust because they need to be my voice with the players when the coaching staff isn't there. So if they're at the cafeteria, they're the ones that have to step in and uh, make sure they're assuring that we're acting the way that we need to. And so 
um, we asked them a battery of questions in the interview. Okay, how are you going to handle this situation? Are there situations where you can handle it as a team rather than bring it to the coaches? At what level do you think an infraction has to be taken to the coach and, and uh, dealt with? How are you going to deal with negativity? Because I, I, the whole thing is, if the leader doesn't state the vision and the purpose ad nauseum all the time, my belief is if you're not saying it as a leader, there's going to create a leadership vacuum. And that vacuum is going to be filled by naysayers who are going to create negativity or cancerous type uh, thoughts that's going to hurt the program. So what I do is and I enable all of our leaders from this leadership class that if you hear a teammate uh, saying something that's not correct, you squelch it right there. And if that doesn't work, you go get another captain and you squelch it again. And if that doesn't work, you come right up to my office and we have my, my refrigerator is always filled with water and Powerade. And mm-hmm. the price of admission is to come get one. Anyone can have one. They got to talk to me for five or 10 minutes. And they're, they're required and, and told that if someone's not doing what they're supposed to do, bring them right up to my office and we have a conversation and try to explain what's going on. The other thing that's really been helpful, Ricky, is outside the captains. And, and, and again, captains is part of ability. It's part of how they're going to handle it. It's, it's the people that others look up to. Who's, who can, when, when adversity starts to hit, you know, what's going to happen? Everyone has a plan until the first punch is thrown, right? Mike Tyson's sure. quote. Well, when the, in, our, in our sport, punches get thrown quite a lot. And so we got to make know. sure that we're able to overcome that. And, and so if, if outside the captains, I actually appoint three what I call communications officers. And because, you know, I'm in my sixth decade of, of living, and the many of the kids that we're coaching are only in their third decade, there can be things lost in the translation. Like when I talk about a typewriter, they have no idea what I'm talking about. When you talk about <laughs> Nintendo, they don't know or Pong or what that, where that is, you know. So if I use an analogy or speak a way that makes sense to my generation, but makes no sense to theirs. These three communications officers are charged with coming up and say, hey, coach, you need to go over this again. These guys don't understand what you want. Or uh, they're charged with if, if the captains or someone has a question, why are we doing what we do? Because this generation wants to know why before they knew what. I mean, Rick, you think about it. When you and I played, coach told you to run through the wall. You just ran through the wall. You didn't it's ask nice. how it was going to hurt. You, didn't, you just did it. This generation doesn't want that. They want to know why they're doing it. And, and frankly, that's more of what I do now. Um, all the things you do to become a head coach, you don't get to do when you become a head coach. And so I'm coaching culture, uh, team building, uh, leadership, uh, all those things, much more than the X and O's now just to maintain that. And so we've, what, what it's done, it's really opened up the trust. And, and the overlying characteristic of everything we do is trust, trust, trust. Because if you trust me, I can jump your backside on the field and you know I'm not mad at you. Okay, I'm really mad at the step you're taking right now because that'll get us beaten. But, but right. you had better take that right step. But listen, I, I'm not mad at you as a person. And, and this generation now with social media, every part of their life overrides and runs together where we were better at compartmentalizing. You know, And of course, I'm making our generation out to be the best there ever was because it was. But... But my point is just the thinking is so much different now and the communication is so much different. And I need help sometimes uh, in, in putting things into a vernacular that our whole team can can listen to. And if they know what's happening, then they'll respond the correct way. So I have your list of captains. So I hope you out with that. Yeah. First was Alex Piccarelli. Yep. 
Uh, Tell me about Alex. Well, I mean, Alex is really the heir apparent to the uh, to the quarterback position. And what he did, like in our in our winter conditioning this year, he was doing a lot to help hold people accountable. You know, if people weren't doing the the exercise right. He was all over them before the coaches even got on him. And so that's one of the things that that I really looked for in Alex was uh, his, his stepping up and he's really wanting to be that leader. And he's in a natural leadership position. Let's face it. When you're the quarterback, you're a de facto leader anyway. And we've had very strong leadership out of that position over the last two years in Colin McGovern and Gavin DiFilippo. And so I thought it was just a nice continuation with that. And he, he just stepped up and showed us he wanted to lead. You always hear that the best job in the NFL is backup quarterback. Different story when you're 20 years old, being the backup quarterback is not an easy job to have. Well, it's not. And, and of course, you know that the time, you're, first, you're not getting paid. And, uh, and second, um, actually, you're paying a statue. And that's, that's even more, that's even more uh, influencing and in they, how they react. And then, and then your time is just so limited. And so you want to make sure that you get on the field. And the trouble is only one quarterback usually plays. And so uh, – so it, it's hard, but I thought Alex did a great job of learning in that role. And, and I think he has all – he has better athletic ability and better arm strength than quarterbacks we've had in the past. You know, we just got to get his decisions – his decision tree to move faster. And, and so uh, he's working very hard at that with the meetings we're going through right now. Next captain is a returning captain, Jeremiah Nails. Jeremiah, well, he, he's the grandfather, I call him, because he's been here forever. He's a graduate student. He'll finish with his master's. He actually started before everyone because he actually came here the first summer before his freshman year to get going. And he has just developed into just a great leader and a great person, very trustworthy. And I think while he may not be the fastest kid on the field and he would be laughing with that big smile of his right now, uh, I think I think he's earned the respect simply because of all his hard work. He never complains. It's coach, what do you need me to do? And I'm doing it for the team. And he's another one who does a great job of holding the team accountable. He'd been a captain as a sophomore. I thought he did an okay job, but I but I didn't really think that he put the effort in as a as a junior to to be the captain again. And so he wasn't a captain last year. But I thought the things that he worked on um, made made him a very viable option. And and I think. Uh, you know, he's one of those guys who became one of my communication officers last year. So while he wasn't a captain, he still had a prominent role. And I think he's he's done a fabulous job of working with our academics and our kids have great respect for how he handles the professionalism of getting them tutors and all those things. So he's yeah. he's certainly a really mature kid that I trust a lot. Yeah, people don't realize that he he works as a graduate assistant in the compliance and academics office. Absolutely. And, and, and does a huge. fabulous job. Our, our kids no contact him. I mean, Sharnice is great. Don't get me wrong. But they feel very comfortable contacting Jeremiah, and he he produces. No doubt. Uh, Alex Brown. You know, Alex Brown, you, I think the offensive line is such a unique position because I think anywhere that I've been, when we've had our best teams, the offensive line sets the tone for toughness, sets the tone for work ethic, sets the tone for togetherness. And that unit is always together and, and always, uh, frankly, does more with less and gets very few accolades. You know, we had freshman of the year, uh, Jalen Leary, offensive freshman of the year running back. Trust me, he's not gaining a 1,000 yards without those five pigs up front doing things. That's a fact. And Alex has just has, has got, done it the old-fashioned way. He's earned it. He brings his hard hat and his lunch pail to work every day. He works extremely hard uh, learning what's going on and working on his test or working on his craft 
individually. You'll see him out on the field working on his footwork all the time when no one's around. And I think that work ethic and his maturity level has really uh, lent itself to become a captain. And you got to love the idea of you got an entire offensive line group back, and that's six, seven deep. And there's a number of guys who could be captain in that. You know, Nick Plunkett interviewed, great candidate right there. I think that uh, Antonio Derry at some point will be a really good candidate. Um, you know, we've we had some really good candidates there. Um, I just felt that Alex uh, Alex fit the whole bill and, and would represent the group very well. JJ Henderson. I mean, JJ is is uh, arguably our best player, and. While he he is certainly the heart and soul of the defense, you know, the, he, he gets the energy, he brings energy. I will say this year, um, he's done everything at the highest level. Where J.J. in the past um, really did really well on the field and did okay off the field. Don't misunderstand me. There's nothing he did, ever did wrong, always on time and all those things. But, but putting your best effort in everything you do all the time, that's really hard. And that's what he really stepped up and did this year. And I think uh, he has the respect of everyone on our team. He covers the hardest guy to cover. He makes the plays when they need to. He's keeping everyone going. He's keeping it real. And, and uh, <coughs> excuse me, and he's, he's developed a trust level among the coaching staff that, that uh, I think warrants him to be a captain. He was the de facto captain many times last year when defense was going through some adversity. And, and now he's earned that right to put C on his team. Um, Furman Reed. Furman, I think when you when you first think of Furman, you think of uh, extremely bright, extremely articulate, hardworking. I mean, this guy brings his hard hat and lunch pail to work every day. And I think he has tremendous respect of his teammates because of that. And I think uh, just how he approaches everything every day and his upbeat attitude, he's always positive. Uh, he was he was just a no brainer uh, to 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 be a captain this year. And the surprise member of the group to me was Bryson Richards. Bryson Richards. <clears throat> well, last year we had uh, Austin Perlman, who kind of was our special teams guy. And, and I think we really want to emphasize special teams and, and we want people to take them seriously and not, not avoid the opportunity to get on. Or Bryson embraces special teams. So there's nobody who goes down there and whacks people like he does. But the thing that Bryson did – during fall camp last year, you know, we were in our team meetings going through our book last year and guys were trying to leave, go to the bathroom. And he just stopped. No, no, go back and sit down. We're not taking a break now. You just do this. And so the accountability and the respect everyone has for his toughness level and his work ethic. And frankly, he's the most honest, one of the most honest people you'll ever meet, too. He's I mean, Bryson is Bryson, good or bad. No doubt. You get what you get. And, and there's no wondering how he's thinking. And the other thing that I've seen him do, for example, at the basketball games, think about this, Ricky. At the basketball games, you know, we, we attended the basketball game as a team. And I, we bought them pizzas and drinks and everything. After the game's over, Piccarilli and uh, Alex Brown and, <clears throat> and uh, uh, Bryson were up picking up all the garbage and putting it away. I mean, that's, that's what a true leader does. It's about humility and it's about serving others. And he, he has done that since he's been here. And so uh, I thought he was a natural for the special team side of stuff. So who are your three communications officers now? Well, I haven't decided yet. You know, what, what I usually through the spring, I kind of watch the dynamic and kind of see who steps forward and who can handle that. It's got to be someone that I trust very much. And so I'm reserving uh, to make those appointments uh, until after fall camp, whenever that is, because we we, la we lost our spring practice. And so 
my ability to to utilize the background of practice and everything that's going on to figure out who those guys are. Uh, I haven't gotten that yet. So I'll probably name those guys right after fall camp's over. Love Stetson Athletics? Then join the team behind the team. Donate to the Hatter Athletic Fund to help keep your Stetson Hatters at the top of elite competition. If you're interested in donating to provide opportunities for Stetson student-athletes, log on to GoHatters.com and click on the Hatter Athletic Fund link in the Support the Hatters tab. So let's take a step back for a second and and go back in time. Uh, Crawford, Nebraska. Why don't you tell me about Crawford, Nebraska? Well, it's a town of about 1,100 people, uh, if you count all the horses and cows once in a while. Um, it's it's, <clears throat> it's small-town Americana is what it is. It's uh, primarily a, a rural community. My, my grandfather had a ranch 18 miles north of town. He was a cattle rancher. And so um, most weekends, uh, my dad and I and our family would go out to the ranch and help him haul bales, cut hay, fix machinery, do fencing, whatever it was. And so and then in the latter part of his life, uh, as he as he aged and was trying to sell the ranch, um, we we actually bought steers and ran them for a year. So each morning, he, Dad and I would get up and go help him feed the steers. Uh, and then I'd come in and go to school. And so that's just – and then in the evening, my dad owned a Napa Auto Parts store. And so once practice was over, I was down at the store working, or we'd go down after dinner and, and fill the orders that my mom would actually take. We, we serviced about a 60-mile radius around Crawford. And she would take the deliveries to the filling stations and to the dealerships and, and we would fill the orders at night. So it was a family run business. It was, it was a great experience because I, I got to, to witness um, unconditional love between my parents every day and working together. Listen, it doesn't mean they, they didn't, you know, everybody has issues, but sure. um, you know, I really saw, I, I really got to see what family first was and, and, when my sister, my, I have a younger sister, two years younger, a brother, two years younger than her, you know, when we were overlapping in high school, my dad would go to one game, my mom would go another. But my parents, luckily, I, and I was blessed beyond belief, I think only missed one game of my whole high school career, football, basketball, wow. golf, everything. And so, so small town community, uh, everybody took care of each other. Everybody looked out for each other. Everybody knew each other's business. And, uh, <laughs> and so at that time, my sport was basketball. And I was, I was really looking to get a basketball scholarship, which I did get a basketball scholarship to a junior college in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, about 75 miles south of us. And for our town, that's probably the first scholarship for athletics that they'd had in 25 years or something like that. Wow. And so, um, so I went off to junior college and played basketball. I didn't, didn't really agree with some of the ethical decisions our coach made down there. And then I transferred to Doan after that to, again, play basketball. So geographically, Crawford, Nebraska is closer to the Black Hills of South Dakota and probably Cheyenne and Laramie than they are to any kind of big-time college football. How do you migrate from there to becoming a college football coach? <laughs> it's, it's quite a journey. Well, yeah, to your point, yeah, my hometown is 30 miles from Wyoming and 30 miles from South Dakota. I'm way up in the northwest corner. And when I went to Boys State, I was the farthest one away from home of anyone in the state. Sure. Uh, so, so, well, here's what happened. I went to, I went to Donut, and, and let's face it, the conference that I played basketball in, I was one of the bigger guys at about 6'2". And when you go to college, you know, I, I wasn't a good enough ball handler to play guard, and I wasn't big enough. I mean, I go to JC, and the first basketball player I see is 
Ben Dean from Dayton, Ohio, and he's six foot 11, 270 pounds. And I look up at him and I go, whoa, you know, this, this whole different world down here. Um, and so when I transferred to Doan, again, I mean, it was, it was pretty evident that I didn't have the skills to be a, a guard. I could have been a three maybe. Um, but uh, all my friends were football players. And I had a knee injury playing basketball and I had to have surgery. And so I couldn't play. So I, I went to the head football coach at Doan at that time because at that time, my goal was to be a high school basketball coach. But I knew if I could coach two sports in the state of Nebraska, I maybe could get a better job or at least make more money because teachers don't make very much money. Sure. I think the starting pay at a teacher was around $26,000 uh, at that time. And so I went to Joe Glenn, the head coach. Joe went on to be the head coach at Northern Colorado, won a national championship, head coach at Montana, won a national championship, became the head coach at Wyoming for a while as well. So a very successful career. Uh, and I said, listen, Joe, I just, I'll tape ankles, I'll haul ice, I'll do whatever. I just want to learn football uh, so that maybe I can coach. And so that's what I did. I taped ankles, carried ice, and ended up calling the plays for the junior varsity as a sophomore. So I came back and all my friends were, were lifting and said, you should go out for football. And so I got into lifting and got a little bit bigger. And, and, uh, and so I came back that next year and I was going to play tight end. And they had a new coach. Nate Hinkle. And he said, uh, Nate said, you know, Roger, I hear you coached last year. I said, I did. He goes, well, I really need a coach more than I do a player. Would you consider coaching? I hadn't played for three years or four years. So I said, sure, I'll coach. If that's what, if that's what you need me to do, I'll do it. And so halfway through the year, all of our tight ends got hurt. And so one day in practice, about halfway through, I jump into practice just because they needed a body and I burned our defense five times. I suit up the next week now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now I'm a player coach, believe it or not. And wow. uh, my junior year ended up leading our team in receptions that year, having only played in five games. That shows you how bad we were. And so uh, so the next year I played, uh, Brian Neighbor came in at that time uh, as the new head coach. So I played. And then once I graduated, I was lucky enough to be awarded an assistantship, uh, GA assistantship at University of Nebraska in the exercise phys department. And so those next two years, during that time I was completing my master's, I actually coached at Don. I coached defensive backs one year, wide receivers the other. And that's how I got into football coaching. So the player coach, the player coach uh, experience is what turned me on to football. And then the other part was, you know, again, I, I still loved basketball. I wanted to coach it at one time, but I got into basketball officiating when I was in college. And I did a lot of, I did college games, high school games. And I figured out I could make a heck of a lot more money with a lot more, a lot less investment being a, being a referee than I could no actually be a high school coach. And so that's, that's when I kind of got the football bug and went with it. So how did you wind up at Doan? I mean, that's a long way from Crawford. Well, Notre Dame, say it with reverence. Um, <laughs> uh, that's how we call it. Doan University now. So my, my degree is worth a hell of a lot more than it was. Um, you know, they recruited me out of high school. Uh, they in Nebraska Wesleyan, they, they, it was an NAIA conference in there. The, it was the NESCAC, but uh, but now it's now it's kind of dissolved. But but I had I had been recruited by them, and there was a, a guy named Dan Koonsman who was a recruiter at Doan, who was in Alliance, Nebraska. Alliance is fifty eight miles, and they were in our conference. And he played, and his family played for uh, St. Agnes, a, a Catholic school there. And and I knew he and his family, and he had recruited me at the start, and so. Um, it was between that and going to uh, to uh, Jefferson City, Missouri, at a college out there to play basketball. And I had 
in junior college, I had a, a junior college teammate from Jefferson, Missouri. I really liked Rick Prosser. And he was trying to talk me into coming out there and playing basketball there. And long story short, I, I ended up deciding to go to Doan through that relationship. I went down there kind of late in the summer and I don't know, it just felt right. And, uh, and so uh, that's where I ended up going. So you're going to grad school at Nebraska. You're coaching at Doan. Tell me about your introduction to Tom Osborne and, and the big time world of college football and with the Huskers. Well, it was, uh, it was an act of God is what it was. So I had finished my master's and and so I had been accepted into the PhD program. And so I'm sitting there going, okay, I love the science. I love the research. I love teaching, but I really like coaching. And I really like to stay in coaching. I don't know what to do. So I, th- I looked around. And I said, well, Coach Osborne has his EED. He has his doctorate. Maybe I should just go ask him. And so you got to understand that from small town Nebraska, Coach Osborne was God. In fact, there's, there's some people that say, God, I actually thought he was Tom Osborne at one time. So, so anyway, I made a random appointment. I just called over to his office. I'd like to make an appointment. I need 15 minutes of his time. And I, literally, I walked in. He was late because a uh, meeting had run over. <clears throat> so I come in there and I'm, you know, again, you have no idea. A small town kid from Nebraska and I'm talking to Red Nasty and he's, I mean, he is the man. He's the man sitting next to the man too. And I said, Tom, I said, Coach Osborne, listen, I need some advice. He goes, okay. I said, well, and I explained, I said, I just finished my master's in, in, phys- in uh, exercise phys. I've been accepted to the PhD program. Uh, I'm coaching at Doan right now. In fact, I said, we actually coached against your son. Your son was the JV quarterback at Hastings. And that's where Coach Osborne went was Hastings. They were in our league. And uh, he said, I, I was at that game. And I said, I know you were. I saw you in the stands. He said, in fact, I said, we had Mike pretty well bottled up until my defensive back started, kept playing too far back. And he kept hitting him underneath. And so it, I could see it kind of struck a nerve that maybe I knew a little bit what I was talking about. So I said, listen, you, you have your EED. What do you think I should do? And he goes, well, Roger, let me ask you this. What do you like to do? And I said, well, I think I like coaching. He said, well, coach. And I'm sitting there going, duh. I just looked like an idiot in front of God. Okay, that's that's what I felt like. I thought, well, duh. And and I realized how how embarrassed I was that I asked what I thought was a stupid question. I said, listen, you're right. I never, you're right. I said, you know, if if you would ever need help here, it would be a dream of mine to, to work for you. And he said, no, we got plenty of people. So then I came back, I don't know, a month, month and a half later, and I said, hey, Coach Osborne, listen, I'd, I'd love the opportunity to, uh, to coach with you. He goes, no, we got plenty. And so I went back again, and uh, I said, you know, Coach Osborne, I'd love the opportunity to work here. I, I, you know, I, I, I like Dome, but I'd really like to be with your program. Nope, we got plenty. And, and I believe, go back to that first coach that I coached with at Dome, Joe Glenn. Joan, Joan knew Coach Osborne and called on my behalf. And so the next time I saw Coach Osborne was at their uh, yearly clinic. And he happened to be over at the food table. And I walked over to him and I said, you know, Coach Osborne, listen, Roger Hughes, he goes, hey, you're from Doan, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am. I said, I would still love the opportunity whenever that comes available, sir. And he goes, here's the deal. Stop down my office. I think we may have a place for you. And uh, that's how I got in there because I just, you know, I just wouldn't take no for an answer. And then uh, when I got hired, See, Nebraska was very, at that time, very incestual. In other words, they usually hired their former players. And Nebraska was unique because they had a full freshman team at that time. And so 
when most people had four or five GAs, we had 14. And, the, and there was one GA that worked with the varsity and the rest of us coached the freshman team. And at that time, freshmen couldn't play varsity football. Right. And so we, what, would, what they would do is they'd play as freshmen, develop them, then they'd redshirt their sophomore year and then start playing. At the time I was there, they changed the rule to where freshmen could actually start playing at the varsity level. And so that's, that's when that all changed right there. And so um, essentially we coached the freshman team and then helped out as we could with the bowl game and everything else. Stetson fans, Bud Light is proud to be the official beer of Stetson University. Making friends is Bud Light's business, and as part of this, Bud Light wants to remind everyone that choosing a designated driver is what good friends do. Bud Light, Daytona Beverages, and Stetson University. Thanks, everyone, for making a responsible choice in choosing a designated driver. And Nebraska's football program was also unique in those days because of the huge number of walk-on players so they had to have more bodies, I would assume, just to manage practice. We at, at Nebraska, we had 160 players on the team. And every every young person from Nebraska, every male would crawl through 400 miles of broken glasses to get the chance to put on a Husker uniform. That's just how it was. And and really, when it was good, that that we had players from Texas, we had players from New Jersey, some players from California with probably the and, and the other places we recruited for our skill. But when those players came in, the mercenaries, I called them, um, the hometown, the home state kids said, hey, fellas, this is our program. This, this, is our pro, this is our pro team in the state. So this is how we do things here. And really established the work ethic and the toughness and all those things that, um, that Nebraska was known for at that time. And, and the other part was Coach Osborne did a great job with the walk-ons and he saved two scholarships every year that walk-ons could earn. And so from the standpoint of treating walk-ons as if they were recruited players, he did, he did an unbelievable job with that. Uh, it, it, it was a, it was an unbelievable machine. During practice, we would have two offensive stations and two defensive stations all going at the same time. And we figured that in practice, we ran probably 120 more plays than every other team in the country. Wow. We were doing it just because of the organization and how many bodies that we had. So uh, you wind up staying on the Nebraska staff as a graduate assistant until you get your PhD in what, 87? Talk about the experiences you had. I know you went to bowl games and uh, I'm sure there were championships won during that time. Talk a little bit about that experience. Well, a couple, a couple experiences come to mind. Um, you know, obviously, obviously those players were, were great players. And, and, and I got to know that they're still kids. You know, when you watch, when you watch the SEC on TV now, you forget that they're still 18 to 22-year-old kids. And they have all the other things going on in their life, girlfriends, social aspects. You know, uh, some of them come from some, some very tough circumstances as well that they're dealing with it as well. And so that was one of the things that stuck out. <clears throat> but um I can remember going to the uh, to the Sugar Bowl, and we're playing LSU at that time. Uh, Bill Arnsberger was the head coach, and we and we were playing to, uh, we were playing in the Superdome, which was un- small town Nebraska kids seeing the seventh one eighth wonder of the world. I mean, that was <laughs> mom and dad have died and gone to heaven, uh, <laughs> and so uh, so I'll never forget. We're getting beaten, and they were physically beating us up up front. And we go into the locker room, and you have to understand, uh, Coach Osborne. He, he never cussed. He was, he single-handedly funded the fellowship of Christian athletes for the whole state of Nebraska. I mean, he's very devout. And, uh, 
and lives exactly what his faith is. He's not phony at all. Um, and we get in the locker room and he said three dad gummits in the same sentence. <laughs> dad gummit, we better come off the dad gum ball and knock these dad gum guys off the ball. And we start being some dad gum physical players. And our players are just going, whoa, because he never raised his voice. I mean, right. he, Coach Osborne never believed in a pregame speech. He said, I believe in the preparation leading up to the game because after that first hit, no one remembers what I say in the locker room. So he was just about, he was all about preparation and doing things and execution was his whole deal. So when he showed that kind of emotion in the, in the locker room, our guys were in shock because he never, he never raised his voice at all. And, and that's why you, you see all these guys losing their mind and going crazy. Um, <clears throat> Coach Osborne never raised his voice at all, ever. And so that night, then that second half, we went out and we kicked our tail. I mean, we, we, it sparked us. We, we took over. Flip side, we go to the Fiesta Bowl next year. We're playing Michigan. And, and, and uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the roles reverse the first half. We are pushing Michigan all over the place. We are kicking their backside. And the locker room setup was, was such that we were pretty close together. And Bo Schembecker was their head coach. And Bo started screaming in their locker room. And the locker rooms were so flimsy, our players could hear it. And I mean, he ripped their backside. And it ripped their backside so much it intimidated our guys. And so we go out, and they came out and just rolled us. I mean, I mean it was – I'd never seen anything like it. But you could hear Coach Schembechler through those walls. Unbelievable. Then on the, on the way home, we actually lost an engine on the plane and uh, had to have all the fire trucks there when we landed. Uh, so it was, it was, I mean, it was an unbelievable experience. And, and, and at that time, you know, what Nebraska was doing, we were, we were playing, <clears throat> we, I'll never forget this. We were playing Oklahoma. We were number one in the country. They were number two or three. And that's when Keith Jackson was playing tight end for him. And right. it was, it was a time when, ABC was doing the game and they had to bring in the trucks with the lights because none of the stadium had lights. So they had right. to bring the trucks in. And I, I get goosebumps thinking about this game right now because the electricity in the air was phenomenal. And I can remember being on the sidelines. We're up in the game and, and we have a chance to win the national championship because we had beaten Oklahoma. I mean, we hadn't beaten Oklahoma. That was the only one standing our way. And uh, we're up 10 points or something like that. And I can remember, time, it's one of the times when time stopped. I'm on the sidelines of the game, and it was like, it was like no one was moving, and I'm looking around, and you could just, you could just feel the intensity. I, I don't even have to describe it. And I said, how does it get better than this? I've experienced the absolute best thing you can experience in college football. And then, unfortunately, Oklahoma broke the wishbone, put Keith Jackson split out, and we didn't have an answer. And then we go score 14 points in the last. And we're down on the one-yard line, fourth and one of the one we could call 41 pitch. I'll never forget the call. And I was so upset with the call that I threw my headsets down. Because my job at that time was to be up in the end zone booth, and we would, we would write down, you know, the NFL has all the pictures that they have. Sure. What we would do, we'd have three coaches up there, and we would actually write down all the different techniques, and we'd have a runner take it down to coach Osborne. So he knew exactly how everyone was lining up and how they were blitzing that very innovative, what he did. Now they actually changed the rules after that. And that you can't, you can't do that anymore. Right. But, but that's what my job is. I remember here 41 pitch coach. And I threw that thing down. I go, God, and it got stuffed and we ended up losing the game. 
And then we end up going to have to play. So that's when we end up playing Michigan in the Fiesta Bowl. But it was it was the most unbelievable out of body experience that I've ever had because the electricity with number one, number two there, it was just uh, you, I can't even describe it. The only other time I've experienced something like that was when Penn State, when when I was the head coach of Princeton, we started late. We're two weeks behind everybody. And so Nebraska was playing Penn State and Penn State had just renovated their stadium and gone up to 107,000. So it was the very first game. Well, Stan Clayton, who coaches for me now, played at Penn State. He was on their national championship team. And their offensive coordinator, Franny Ganter at Penn State, his son played on our team at Princeton. So we got tickets. I took the whole staff up there. And um, I'll never forget at the game, they started that, we are Penn State. We are Penn State. And it was unbelievable. Everyone was a whiteout. They had the towels. And that's where I got that, we are Stetson. Sure. That's why I brought it from because that was that experience was as close to the Nebraska Oklahoma experience as I can I can remember. But yeah, Coach Osborne, people don't know how smart he was. Yeah. I mean, the counter tray that Washington ran, Nebraska started that play. The fumble ruski, he started that play. Yeah, he would that. put the defense in at seven o'clock in the morning, and he would call defenses during the game, and then the offense would come in about eight thirty or nine and put the offense in. He scripted every play, called every play on offense, and and actually called defenses during the game. There's only one Tom Osborne. And I mean, when he would watch film, one of the lucky things that I had was, again, the, the GAs that were there, the GAs that were there um, were primarily former players. And so the offense always met Monday night. And and. I was the only one sitting there and coach Osborne would come in after he, he was a, he was a religious runner. He ran out to practice every night. And, uh, and uh, so he would sit there watching film and I'd be the only one in the room with him watching film. And at that time he'd had his, he'd had his heart surgery. So he was always eating a Wendy's baked potato. That was his deal. And he never gave me a bite, which I was a little pissed about, but he, but he always eaten that in front of me, but he would Ricky, he would run the film back once and he'd know where all 22 guys are. And I just asked him, Coach, how, how do you do that? Because I have to run about two or three times. He goes, well, if the nose guard is here, you got to have the safety over here. And then the weak safety tells you. And he just, just there's only one Tom Osborne. And I think when Coach Solich, who I know, and, I, and, and the guy's been great to me, Frank, Frank is a – and what he's done at Ohio has been phenomenal. But every, Tom made every decision. Tom did everything. And I think there was that learning curve adjustment when Tom left – no one else had made a decision before because he was Nebraska football. And frankly, I don't think that 95 team that, that they had that beat Florida. Uh, I was actually in Japan coaching at that time, uh, an all-star team in Japan when the game was played. And I got home at, at three o'clock in the morning and immediately turned on my recording to, to watch the game. But right. I mean, the teams he put together were, were remarkable and the things that he did. Uh, I don't think he gets enough credit for, for his innovation. Want to stay up to date on all things happening in Hatter Nation? Follow us on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram accounts at Stetson Hatters, your destination for in-game stats, student-athlete features, game promotions, and more. Follow at Stetson Hatters today. Yeah, I grew up in a state with a head coach that was uh, pretty well known for his innovations and, yeah, and exactly. success on the football field, and, and they clashed some. Uh-huh. Uh, to me, but to me, you know, college football lost something when – 
Nebraska split off from the Big Eight, and they don't play Oklahoma anymore. And the same thing with Texas and Texas A&M. They don't play each other anymore. I think college football lost something when those rivalries cease to exist. Oh, I, I agree. And, and you know, when I was there, people don't know this, but when John Cooper got fired at Ohio State, they came after Coach Osborne hard. And, and so I can remember him kicking all the GAs out of the room. And he had his, his coaches. And what he did was, you know, they were offering a substantial amount of money for him to be Ohio State's coach. I'm sure. Well, the Big Ten, the Big Ten um, has a much different academic requirement than the Big 12 did, or the Big 8 at that time. And so we went, Coach Osborne went down the roster to see, okay, if we were at Ohio State, would we be able to get these kids into school? And there were a number of people on the roster they couldn't. I'll I'll give you an example. Neil Smith, who ended up being, I think, will end up being a Hall of Fame player for Kansas City as a defensive lineman. Neil came in and, uh, again, he was not very skilled in reading, writing, communicating. Now, Neil, I'll give that, I'll give him tremendous credit, a great kid went and, and gained those skills in college. Well, Prop 48 could never get in at, uh, at, at Michigan or at Ohio State, excuse me. And so he decided to stay at Nebraska rather than go to Ohio State because of that. And I think, I think you're right, Rick. I think some of those things lost it. But, you know, the game has changed so much from the standpoint of the financial dollars. No and, <clears throat> you know, with Texas in the Big 12, they had their own network. And, and when – the Big Ten right now is getting $50 million checks from their network each school. SEC is getting around $48 million checks. The ACC is around $42 million. Uh, that amount of money is just crazy. And so Nebraska said, we're not going to allow Texas to only to be the only school that can have a TV station. This, this is not good for the conference. And the other part that was good for Nebraska that people don't understand is they went into a higher accreditation for universities. And so their ability – their ability to gain about $400 million a year in NIH grants and, and other things academically for research also elevated. So it was, it was absolutely the best, the best decision for the university. Right. It's made it a much harder job for now Scott Frost there because it's not the same. When Nebraska was great, there were only about eight teams that got on TV all the time. They were one. You're right. Okay. Well, our strength and conditioning program was so far ahead of everyone else when Boyd Epley got there that it, it wasn't even close. Now everybody has those facilities. Everybody catches up. And, and so, and the other part is, you know, you look at the population around Nebraska, there's not, there's not a lot of people there. And so they've got to get people to come to them. Well, you go out to New Jersey, well, you're, you're going past Penn state, you're going past Ohio state, you're going all those, all those good schools to come play in Nebraska. And, and in talking with the coaches there, the, the earlier recruiting has hurt them as well because kids are making decisions so early. If, if a kid gets to Nebraska and sees the facilities and know what they have, one of the things that people don't know, Tom Osborne had more academic All-Americans than any school in the country. Right. You know, and so people, I think people didn't realize that. And so, um, so I think, you know, losing when, when the dollar became the most important thing, which it has now. Uh, you lose a lot of the things that, as you said, Ricky, those rivalries and some of the other things that go on in college football have become, um, have gone, 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 gone kind of by the wayside. So you get done with your time in Nebraska and uh, the next stop is Wisconsin Whitewater? Correct. Correct. So went there, went there. I actually, it's one of those things where I couldn't, I couldn't find a job and, and I actually got turned down for jobs because they felt like I had a PhD I didn't want to coach. Well, why do you want to coach if you have a PhD? 
And so, or the other one was, well, you have all these connections. You won't be here more than six months. You'll be out. So yeah, I got hired by Bob Brezowitz at University of Whitewater. Um, he had played there and he had just started the program and they hadn't been to the playoffs in a while. And that first year, uh, we ended up going to the playoffs, got, got to the second round of the playoffs. Uh, great experience. Uh, unbelievable setting up there. I really love my time at Whitewater and, and um, took a little hiatus when I was between jobs and went back there and helped out in the spring, too. And that's <clears throat> they had won some national championships by then. But it's unbelievable football powerhouse. And then to Cameron University in uh, Oklahoma. Yeah, I did so well there that uh, they dropped football. I did a heck of a job there when uh, when I coached. But, uh, you know, the, the the coach that came in at Doan, Brian Neighbor, um, was now the head coach at Cameron. And Brian really taught me the unique things about, about managing, leading, that type stuff. And so he had a job come open and he had called me. And, and uh, uh, <clears throat> literally, I was only at Whitewater for about four months and I went, went, went down to Cameron. Cameron had just won the national title at NAI Division One at that time. And so they were, they were doing a great job. Now the president didn't like football and he actually brought Brian in to fail so he could drop football because he was into the arts and Brian overachieved and won the national championship. So then he put us into the Lone Star Conference, which is NC2A division two, totally different level. Sure. But didn't increase our budget or our recruiting at all. And so uh, the, the president finally got what he wanted. I was lucky enough to, to, I actually left there prior to them dropping the program. So I assume during those times at Whitewater and Cameron and Doan, you really honed your recruiting skills and, and your your sales pitches at that point. Talk a little bit about how much you learned, not only on the field, but the off the field part of football. Well, the, the, the yeah, I mean, nobody, it's amazing. Nobody sits you down and says, here's how you recruit. Right. I mean, it just kind of assumed, <coughs> excuse me, it's just kind of assumed that you know. And uh, and so recruiting in Whitewater, I can remember going up to Green Bay, Wisconsin in the, in the middle of January. And trust me when I tell you, at 22 below, uh, every every hotel up there had a place to plug in your car to make sure they could start the next morning. <laughs> I mean, it, it, there's a hardiness. So and, and and the Wisconsin people are such genuine people and they know how to have a good time and they're going to find a good time. I can remember being up there. It's Sunday morning. It's. 6.30 in the morning, I'm pulling to Safeway, which is a big grocery chain. 6.30 in the morning now, the brats are on the grill, the burgers are already frying, and the keg is tapped. And they're already, they're already gone, they're getting ready for the it. Packer game. I mean, that's just – but they find ways to have great fun, and they make their own fun, and they take care of each other. So, I, Wisconsin is one of my favorite, favorite places. So, you get your big break, and you move on to Dartmouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about your time. You know, obviously, Ivy League's a whole other world. Uh, the, the ancient eight and it's uh, academics first and everything else after that. Yeah, I, it was, it was kind of interesting. It, if you go back to my dome, my dome upbringing, every job that I've had generally has a dome connection to it. So the head strength coach at Dartmouth had been in college with me at dome at that time. And so buddy Tevens was the head coach. He had just gotten the job at Tulane. John Lyons, his defensive coordinator, stepped in, and they had just won the Ivy League championship, and they had a kid named Al Rozier who led the nation in rushing. He was a really good player. So so John, um, so Mike says, listen, I'll get you an interview uh, and see how it goes. And so I can remember I was supposed to interview on Tuesday. We go down to the convention. It was in Dallas. And, and so I'm down there on Saturday, 
And Mike goes, hey, you ready for your interview? I said, yeah, Tuesday afternoon. He goes, no, no, right now. What, what do you mean right now? So we take, we go up to the room. And by that time, John had seen probably 15 guys. He was worn out. And I saw that and I said, Hey, John, this is wearing you out. I get it. And he, I sat down and he goes, Roger, I'm telling you right now, I've got three positions open. I'm interviewing five people. You're the only one I don't know. So I said, Whoa, well, okay. That's not good. So, so we talk, he said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to see, uh, you know, we'll see what we're going to do. I'd like to have people out for an interview. I'll, we'll find out. So he calls me for an interview and um, he says, listen, I've hired two guys. He said, you're interviewing for the offensive coordinator job and quarterback coach. He said, I'm interviewing three guys for it. You're still the only one I don't know. <laughs> and so I said, okay. So I flew out and, and during the time in Dallas, I said, okay, so what, what your kind of vision for offense, what do you want to do? He said, you know, I think I'd really like to run the spread offense and spread it out and, and do more, more of that stuff. Well, Dartmouth had been in the eye the whole time that they were really good. So I get to the interview at, and we're at lunch and I'm supposed to get on the board with him in the afternoon. And um, he said, you know, Roger, I've been thinking, you know, I, I really don't want to do that other stuff. I just want to stay in the eye and just run that. So I'm thinking everything I prepared was for everything else. And now I'm going to have to go back. And I had, I've been running the Georgia Tech wishbone, you know, the double wing offense at Cameron. So I'm going, this is bad. This is bad. So I get up on the board. I said, John, I'm just going to be honest with you. I prepared for something else. Now, here's what I remember from my Nebraska stuff. And, and so I just kind of went to the board. And after it was over, I said, you know, John, listen, that's not my best effort. And I, and I absolutely know that. I had prepared for something else. Not an excuse. It's just what it is. But then I got out of my chair and went over to Jess. I said, but if you hire me for the job, you will not have any issues on offense and we will be the most productive offense you've ever had. And I just sat back. And so my flight went through Boston. I called Laura, my wife in Boston. And I said, it's over. There's, there's no <laughs> chance I'm getting this job, you know, because uh, I'd really done a poor job. So I get home. I, he told me he's going to call me on Tuesday. Well, Wednesday, he hadn't called me yet. And so I'm literally driving out of my driveway to go recruit down in Texas for Cameron. And here comes Laura running. That, that John was on the phone and then he, he offered me the job. And so I got out there and I was very lucky in 92 because uh, we had a quarterback named Jay Fiedler and, and Jay ended up playing, I think 11 years in the NFL. Jay was, <clears throat> Jay made me a really smart coach yeah. and he was really a good player. And I learned not only so much from him, but I thought we learned together and we had a great run at Dartmouth. We, uh, <clears throat> we had a 22 game win streak. We went undefeated in 2006 um, and, and, and really had a great run up there. Geico offers a special discount on car insurance to Stetson alumni. Just visit geico.com to get a free quote and select Stetson alum to see how much you can save. Don't drop the ball when it comes to saving money. Contact Geico today. So your time at Dartmouth, you go on and in 2000, you get your first head coaching job at Princeton um, what, what are the emotions? Cause I know you're an emotional guy. What are the emotions that are going through you as you get ready for your introductory press conference or, or your introduction to Princeton? Well, it was, it was a crazy interview process because the athletic director, Gary Walters, um, is a former Princeton basketball player. In fact, he, he and Bill Bradley played together and were on played in the final four were on the cover of sports illustrated at one time. And Gary was a guard. So, 
Uh, Gary has his process that he wants to do. He always said the integrity of the process ensures the integrity of the result. So um, he interviewed, I want to say, 50, 60 guys in the initial interview. Wow. I drove down uh, after I'd gotten back from the road recruiting. I, I had the West Coast at Dartmouth and interviewed with him and didn't hear anything. So I went back out in January to recruit. He calls me, says, listen, I want to do a second interview. And this time we're going to do it <clears throat> with uh, some alumni groups and other people. So I flew back, did the interview, flew back out to Anaheim where the coaches convention was. And then he calls me there and says, listen, we want you to come back for a third. I'm flying back and forth across the country. And so I'm, I'm on Princeton for my third interview. And I'm at his kitchen table, Gary's kitchen table. And he starts questioning me. And finally, I look at him and go, are you offering me the job? And he goes, do you want the job? And, and, and I'm going, my first thought was, am I ready? I haven't talked to Laura. This is what I've been dreaming about. But are you sure? Am I prepared? What should I be negotiating for? I haven't even talked Sorry, I said, let's talk about our relationship with admissions and that stuff. So I, uh, I couldn't pull the trigger. He said, you want the job? After we had talked, I said, but our relationship, I couldn't pull the trigger. Even though my whole life I had prepared for this opportunity. Um, all those self-doubts come in. So I called Laura, came back, sat down, and and he knew I was struggling with the decision. Right. And I said, and and finally we're talking, and uh, and he says, you want the job? And I'm just kind of thinking out loud. I'm not even looking. I go, I think we can get it done, yes. And he jumps across the table, gives me his hand, shakes it, congratulations, you got the job. Because he knew that I was I was struggling. And so then all of a sudden, okay, boom, here's how we go. I couldn't pull that trigger. And it's interesting, Ricky. I use that story and analogy when I recruit. Because when players are in my office on after the official visit and you're trying to get them to make a decision, I talk about they go through the same thing in recruiting. They've been recruited by all these coaches and they they don't know how to pull the trigger. And so many times I'll just tell them that story. Hey, I get exactly what you're talking about. And so a lot of times when kids are waffling and they say, yeah, I'm committing. I'll jump right over that table again and shake their hand and make sure mom and I get a big hug going before they have a chance to change their mind. Because uh, yeah, everything that I had dreamt about um, was, was solidified in that decision. And I can't believe I almost blew it. So you grow up in Nebraska, rural Nebraska, you go to college in rural Nebraska, you work in all these little whitewater and, and all these little places even at Dartmouth, you're, it's kind of isolated up there. All of a sudden now you're in New Jersey and the, you know, it's a, it's a whole nother world. So not only are you learning to be a head coach for the first time, but you've got to deal with an environment that's got to be completely foreign to you at that point. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. Um, <clears throat> you know, I mean, and I don't want this to sound the wrong way, but I was in the New York times more than our president was. Sure you know, the, the New Jersey media and all that stuff. So, <clears throat> so yeah. And, and the, the alumni that you're dealing with, I mean, during my interview, um, you know, you have W Wynn lacrosse player. He owns the weather channel. You've got, uh, I can't remember his name, but he was vice president TIA Cref. You've got people who are just, I mean, Dick Hasmeyer, former Heisman trophy winner invented shut helmets. You know, that was his that was his deal. I mean, the, the people you're surrounded with. Hell, I'm, I'll never forget this. We're my first January. I'm driving down to Richmond to meet some alums with a guy in the development office. 
He says, let's stop in here. Lum wants to meet you. And we're, we're stopping at freaking Congress. And he goes, hold on, hold on. Uh, he's in a committee meeting. He's, he's coming out of the committee meeting to meet you. And Bob Ehrlich, who ended up being the governor of Maryland after that, was a former captain. He was a congressman. And he he stops Congress to come out and meet with me and just talk with me. And I mean, that's I mean, Frank Vuno, who was ended up being my booster club president, you know, 16W marketing. He start he he started really the Pro Bowl. He started he started doing all those things. And he's probably ranked in the top six of major influences in sports marketing. The people you're surrounded with at that level are just, I mean, Bob Baldwin was the former undersecretary of the Navy and was president of Morgan Stanley. Those are the people that you just, how Donald Rumsfeld. I mean, the, the one thing that Princeton had is they have this thing called Princeton reunions. And every year um, around graduation, they have the five-year classes come back. And then they have the two classes around it. And every they actually board off different places on campus where each five fifth year class has their own reunion. And the 25th class is a big deal. All the alums come back for that. I mean, it's it's crazy. And to give you a sense, Budweiser's number one day is the Indianapolis 500. Their number two day, Princeton reunions. Okay, because because they have a good time. And and they raised thirty seven million dollars at that at, during that weekend, unrestricted funds for their annual fund. But, you know, Robert Mueller is standing right there. We're talking, you know, because he's a former Princeton guy who was running the FBI at that time. I mean, the, the, the people you came in contact with were just remarkable. And I, I pinched myself the whole time that I was there. That's not including, you know, all the things. I mean, football started in the Ivy League. Right. And while I love the league and I love the kids, you know, the nice thing is, I mean, on Saturday, you wish they could run a little faster sometimes, sure. but between Monday and Friday, there were really no problems. Great kids, and very much the same thing that we have here at Stetson. Right. Great, great kids who, who do everything right. But the, the one thing that I didn't like was, you know, football was the only sport that couldn't go to the playoffs. Right. Every other sport could go. Why? And I, I went to the president, Harold Shapiro, who happened to be the president of Michigan before he was at Princeton. And he told me in, in 13 years at Michigan, he never once got a letter about the football coach and the football program. He said at Princeton, I had 15 letters in the first alumni. I mean, that's how much the alumni pride themselves on being the number one team, the first team to play against Rutgers. Right. That makes sense. So, um, so I asked Harold, I said, Harold, you know, I need, a, I need a logical reason why we can't go to the playoffs. Well, you know, that academics and Harold, hold up. Our playoffs don't come around academics. Our finals are in the January, so it wouldn't be any full influence. I need a logical reason. And he looked at me and goes, Roger, because I don't want to. Now I know. That's enough. Thanks, Harold. <laughs> but but, uh, but that, that, that part of the hypocrisy always used to drive me crazy because they want to tell you that those kids have to go through all the same admission standards, and they do have to meet certain standards. Don't misunderstand me. Right. But there's there's probably – 50% of those kids on the football team or in some of the athletics who would never get into school without that kind of support. Right. And, and that's okay. I think any, any talent that anyone has should be able to better themselves. And so I don't, I don't see where the league has to run from that. I think they have to run to it and, and understand that the type of people they put out are remarkable. So during your time at Princeton, it was a lot like to me from the outside, 
looks like what you've gone through at Stetson as far as a slow build to find some success until you get to that 2006 season when you, you know, your co-champions of the league go nine and one. Is it is it a very similar process to what you've gone through here? There, there have been many things that I've taken from that and put in here. Yes. And interestingly enough, when we got to Princeton, we were, it was progressing just like it should. The first three years here, we got to six and four, my third year and had everybody coming back. And then our three best players on defense got uh, convicted of plagiarism, which means they have to take an automatic year off. Right. And so that next year <clears throat> we lost three plays on the, or three games on the last play of the game. Okay. The next year we lost three three games on the very last play of the game. And the other part was that was different was, and again, this is not an excuse. The Ivy league is an admissions league. Going back to having the players that you need, <clears throat> you know, it, it, Princeton was, was Princeton was tough. Sure. Princeton was hard getting them in. And our Dean of admissions who I admired, admired greatly Fred Hargadon, who was the guru in admissions. He was tough. Now he loved sports, but he wasn't going to give up, more slots or sometimes you didn't get all the slots you were supposed to get uh, as you were building the team. But a lot of the things that we did as far as alumni engagement, getting the alums on board as far as building that network, uh, getting the right strength coach in place like we have now, all those things were very similar to what, what we went through at Princeton. Yeah. So when your time in Princeton's over, you have a little bit of space in there before the Stetson opportunity comes along. How do you, Focus your energies without a team to coach at that point. Well, kind of what I'm doing right now, frankly. Um, I mean, it, it was it was it was a wake up call because because here's what happens. You know, when you, I knew that I couldn't control admissions, and and as soon as we won the league championship at nine and one, had the best record they'd had in 47 years, <clears throat> um, admissions pulled back. And now kids that we normally got in for the next, for the last two years, all of a sudden weren't getting in for whatever reason. And, and, and again, not an excuse. I should have done a better job. No question. But I could see that. And so I, I, you know, I'm one of those guys, well, if I work just a little harder, I'll find a way. I just, I just got to put in a little more time. Well, clearly that's something I'm doing. And I was working myself to death. And, and what, what I found out when I got fired was um, a lot of things I thought were really important really weren't. And, and it really was a whole blessing in disguise. While I'm still, as a competitor, I don't like to lose. Sure. And I still view that as a loss in my book. But in many ways, it probably saved my life. And it also gave me a chance for the, for the next six months to spend a ton of time with my daughter and tutor her, take her to school, become, become the family man that, that I always thought I was, but never really dedicated the time sometimes because I let other things get in the way. So I figured out all those things that I thought were really important really weren't that important. And the other part was there were two things going on. One, I was ready for a change from the non-scholarship. I wanted to do something professionally or an NFL or, or, uh, or do something at the highest level scholarship, just to have a scholarship. I mean, how much fun would it be to walk into a home and say, hey, you don't have to pay anything if you want to come to our place. I've never had that, that experience. And so I was looking for that. And at the same time, uh, Dome College was getting a new president. And I had been nominated by some people and I pursued it. And I actually interviewed to be the president of Dome. <clears throat> and was I a dark horse candidate? Totally. I mean, but I thought leadership's leadership. Leadership is leadership. It doesn't matter. 
And so I, I went through the preparation to become a president and really learned a lot about the business side of, of higher education. And I really hadn't thought, I've always thought of higher education as a very noble profession. But when I got into the business side of stuff, I became aware it's a heck of a lot more like a business than I gave it credit for. Sure. And so, uh, so I think a couple of those things. And then, then the other, I was able to coach with the United Football League. And at that time, it was a league that was, at that time, the NFL was talking about going to 18 games. And they were going to need some replacements probably in November as injuries occurred. And we were trying to play the first six weeks of the season or so, seven weeks of the season. And then have players readily available to go to the NFL All right. if we could. And that was our business model. And the thought was if a player went to the NFL, the NFL could supplement us. Mm-hmm. But that's stupid because the NFL doesn't supplement whoever they want. You know, right. they're, they're not paying for it. So, but I tell you what, I, the, the United Football League really became the unreliable football league because you didn't always get your check. The health benefits weren't always there. But I, but I got to, I got to coach professionals and, I was lucky because I had a really good room of, of great kids as receivers. I had a nine-year veteran in Robert Ferguson who played at Texas A&M, who played for the Packers and won Super Bowls. I had a rookie from Northwestern <clears throat> who uh, was a quarterback at Northwestern who was just exactly like the kid I was dealing with. Well, I had a kid from Ohio State. And, and so it, anything you ask them to do, they could do. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, they came to work every day with a, with a notebook, pencil, coach, let's get, get me to the NFL. And, and I mean, the professionalism that I learned from that was remarkable. GoHatters.PhotoShelter.com is your one-stop shop for all of the most memorable moments from your favorite Stetson teams. Game day and event photos are available for purchase directly on the website. Show your Stetson pride and log on to GoHatters.PhotoShelter.com to get your photos today. So what was it that attracted you to start a program from scratch knowing it was going to be non-scholarship? the place you always wanted to be. What, what brought you to Stetson? Well, um, going back to my Doan connection, um, a person on the search committee knew that strength coach very well, had worked with him at Georgia Southern and said, listen, we're starting a program. I need someone who's worked um, at an academic school, who's coached non-scholarship football and that, you know, you would trust to run a program. And my friend had said, well, Roger Hughes, he said, and he said, why Roger? He goes, is Princeton academic enough for you? And, and he said, he said, you're kidding me, right? He goes, no, right now he's out of work. He's looking for something, but give him a call. And so I got the phone call and I go, ah, I'm really looking for something different, you know? Uh, but the chance to start a program from scratch. And, and when you think about it, when you go into any business or any team, you've got to spend two years changing the culture most of the time. Or if you start from scratch, you can just start off and have all the energy pointing that direction. And so, um, and this, so I, they talked me into coming down for an interview. Mm-hmm. And the first person that I met was Stacy, who picked me up at the airport, and then she drove me right over to the new president, Wendy Living. And <clears throat> Wendy, I thought Wendy and and Jeff both convinced me to come down here. Wendy did it with this talk. I said, "Okay, Wendy, where are you have a football? Oh, football's going to save her. Her words were, football's going to save this school.'" We need football. We need more males. And, and we, we think that you're the guy to do that. And I said, well, I said, I'm not an enrollment director. Are we going to win? Are you going to do the things to win in football? Cause it's different football. So big, you have to have a lot more infrastructure in place. Are you willing to do that? She said, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm really to do that. I said, well, now you need to know Wendy, if we're not here to win, I'm not going to be fun to be around. I'm just telling you, I'm, I'm, I'm not. 
So are you going to do what it takes to win? I'm not going to break rules. And, and she said, let me tell you this, Roger, when, when, and these are her words, <clears throat> when we were at the board of trustees and we wanted a unanimous vote, we finally came up with a unanimous vote and okay, we're bringing football back. Everyone's jumping around. And one of the trustees looked at her and said, Wendy, and these are her words now, if this football experiment doesn't work, it's your ass. And she looked at the guy and said, don't you worry, my ass is big enough to cover it. <laughs> I said, okay. I said, so let me ask you this. I said, I need access to you. I said, I'm not looking to circumvent the AD, but there's some, sometimes I need to bring my problems directly to you because only you can handle it. Will I have access? And she gave me her card with her phone number, with her cell phone, and says, call me anytime. And I said, I'm in. So what was the biggest challenge for you to get things started here? Obviously, you come in, there's no facility, there's no footballs, there's no helmets, there's nothing. How do you, how do you wrap your hands around, wrap your head around, I've got to do it all? And I had to because I didn't have anyone else around. Um, well, my first, my first day on the job was a desk and a phone. That was Stetson football. Right. That's all we had. And the first problem was fielding all the calls of coaches who wanted to play us right away. Of course, of course they, all, they all want to play us right away. And, of course, you, you have no idea how it is in football. I'll have a part-time position that comes up, and I'll get 80 residents. Right. Now, think when you have to fill a whole staff. Right. I mean, I had everybody and their dog calling, recommending, sending resumes and that stuff. And so um, the, the biggest challenge through the whole process is not physical, it's the mental. It's educating people how to think differently and think division one. With, with all due respect to, to Stetson, um, Stetson had been doing things, at least athletically. And frankly, I think Wendy would, would agree with me throughout the administration. They've been doing things like Doug Lee wanted to for 23 years. Right. And, and that thinking, I would argue, was a little archaic. And, and so to come in and change the thinking. And, and that's the biggest challenge we have every day here, Ricky, is to change the thinking, looking to get better every day and making someone else better every day. And I think um, that's been the biggest challenge. And, and the other problem is, you know, at smaller schools like this, because our salary structure is what it is, many times we have turnover. And so when a new person comes in, it's another re-education process for that. But, but part of it is just a, a a can-do attitude. I remember my first my first meeting about the new facility. Um, they were talking about cutting back on stuff, and I said, "Hold up, fellas!" I said, "We get one shot to do this, just one. So we need to do this the right way. Tell me what's the number we have to get to to make this thing functionally correct." And they wouldn't tell me. Mm -hmm. They were afraid to tell me. Right. And I keep going around the room. Give me the freaking number. Give me the number. And someone said 1.2 million. I said, no problem. We'll find it. Build it the right way now. It will come. Trust me on this. We're walking out, and, and they were shocked. But again, coming from Princeton, you make four phone calls, you have a million bucks. I mean, that just that's just a success that that they'd had there and, and the alumni engagement. And so uh, we're walking away, and this person who was on the committee looked at me, he goes, Welcome to Setson. That's just Stetson. I said, what do you mean? That's just how we act here. And I looked at him and I said, don't you ever say that to me again. Don't say this. that's Stetson. This is Stetson. 
This is Stetson. This is what we deserve. This is where we're going right here. So don't ever talk to me about that again, because it's that way because you allow it. Right. It's that way because everyone allows that thinking to go around here. We're not doing that anymore. We're not accepting for second class. We deserve to be first class. And so do your lungs. So that guy didn't talk to me for the next four months, but, but, <laughs> but uh, I mean, that's, that's been, that's, I think that's, I think that's the hardest thing to do in any organization. Success makes you slow to learn and quick to forget. And you, you, you're, you don't want to change anything, but then, um, and you also sometimes forget what got you there, the work ethic and all the things you get there and you think, well, I'll just ride this out now. So that's not how you make organizations work. And so that's, that's been probably the biggest education. And, and then the other part is I think educating our alumni and, and helping them to understand their role in a successful university. And we have alumni here who every bit is successful of those I experienced at Dartmouth and Princeton, but we we haven't engaged them, I don't think, as, as readily as we need to, nor have they felt that sense of belonging. And so one of the things I'm pretty proud of is, is that we're getting to that point where I can make a phone call and now and we can get a guy an interview. And that's ultimately it's about opportunities for our players sure. and our kids. And that's and that part is exciting for me is. Well, no, it's not exciting for me. It's been a conference tournament, but it's pretty close. So as a coach here. I'm sure you found out pretty quickly you were not coaching players to start with. You were coaching community and, and, and this, and the university. Yeah. Yep. And, and, and it's just, I mean, it's, it sounds egotistical the way you say that. And it, and that's not how I view it, but it's just, it's just part of being successful. And the first part of being successful is assuming you deserve it. Right. And, and assuming that that <clears throat> when you work hard and do things the right way and treat people the right way, good things are going to happen. And and I, I call it watering the flowers. And guess what? First two times you water the flowers, you don't see many results. But as things start to kick in and the momentum starts to build, all of a sudden the flowers bloom. And, and I would argue that our program is really about to bloom here. We're, we're, we're pretty close. One of the first things you did, I know, when you uh, got here – was you and you've been through a ton of coaches, but you brought in Brian Young, and Brian's been the rock for you on the defense, and he's, uh, I would assume, probably the most important hire you've made. Well, he's certainly one of them. <clears throat> you know, I, I would argue that Nolan Burns, uh, my first director of football ops, was huge. He was my first hire, <clears throat> and I'll get to Brian in a second. But but Nolan allowed me to do because he had such great organizational skills and great people skills he could fill a lot of different roles. So where if I wasn't there, he could be me. And, and if I needed him to do things, he could, he was really adaptable to do stuff. Going back to Brian, uh, he was the next hire that I made. And, and he has been very stable on the defensive side of the ball. And he is, he, he had come from Cornell. So he had the Ivy league experience. And so I knew that he had experience dealing with the same type of personalities, families, that type stuff and alums that we'd had before. Uh, but he has really bought into doing things very professionally, doing things the right way. And, uh, you know, I've been lucky to keep him this long, um, but I've also, I've also told him he needs to pursue opportunities to be a head coach, which I think he wants to do. He's ready. Sure. And so part of my job is to, to make the nest here, so to speak, so attractive, you don't want to leave, but then also push them out of the nest when it's time for them to get their opportunity. And, and I think Brian's about at that level, but I'm very blessed to have him. 
and and he has bought into <clears throat> what we're trying to sell here and frankly what we're trying to build here from day one and to have that stability especially when I was more on the offensive side of the ball and he was on the defensive side of the ball it freed me up to to focus more offensively Florida Orthopedic Associates is proud to support Stetson University Athletics don't let pain affect your game for sports injuries, sprains, fractures, and breaks, if it hurts, see them first at their Orange City walk-in clinic for urgent orthopedic injuries. Offices are located at Deland, Orange City, Lake Mary, and New Smyrna Beach. Florida Orthopedic Associates, state-of-the-art care, close to home. So when you get things started, you've got you and Nolan and Brian, and then there's Patrick Cohn and Fletcher Eldemeyer. They're the first two guys through the door. And basically, it's the five of you that go out and start beating the bushes to find players. And I know the objective of that first recruiting class was, let's try to get 50 guys. You come out signing day, and you end up with 108. Talk about the process of where you got so much buy-in to get to that point where 108 kids said, yeah, we want to come. Well, I think I think it speaks to the importance of college football in Florida and the South. I think that's part of it. I think the academic reputation of Stetson was pretty well known. And so when we were looking for those kids who wanted more than just to come to a school and play football, they wanted to get a degree that counted for something. I think we were the uh, the most logical place to go uh, in, in in the Southeast, frankly. Uh, so I think that made it good. The, the, and, and, and again, the football IQ here at the high school level is very high, not only among the student athletes, but among the coaches. Sure. And, and so they were a great help as well. But I can remember, I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely crazy what, uh, how things went down. I can remember we had a normal recruiting weekend is 48 hours. And so usually you have 48 hours. Now we bring them in on a Thursday night. If they come far away, Friday, go home Saturday. And during that time, you're showing them all around and you've got to be very, very coordinated because there's meetings with me, meetings with the position coach, meetings with faculty, uh, getting them around to see all the facilities, uh, meeting with financial aid. <clears throat> you have to have all that orchestrated and organized. And we only had three guys on, on the team. It was myself, Nolan, and Brian. And we had three weekends back to back to back within, I think, about nine days. So we started on a weekend and we went – Friday, Saturday, Sunday, no, no, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, three straight weeks. And we had probably 30 to 35 kids in each one of those. And understand there's only two van drivers now. Okay. So we're, we're, I don't know how we did it. I don't, I don't know how we did it. It's a credit to Brian and, and, and Nolan being so organized with everything. But yeah, we we got through those weekends and we probably had a hundred and I don't know, probably 109 to 100, 125 kids and their families. Okay, so that's just the kids. Uh, then take that times three. Right. And that's what <laughs> that's what we did. And uh, and so I remember signing day, we actually had the first signing day in Jeff's office and we invited uh, we invited Wendy to come over, uh, our president. And so we coached her up to do it like the NFL draft. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, the first NLI comes across and it's Nico Morgado. I'll never forget. Nico Morgado was the very first guy. And so we had, we had the camera out and 
we gave the sheet to Wendy and, and Wendy said, with the first pick in the 2013 draft, the Stetson Hatters pick, Nico Margato. And of course, we all go nuts in the deal. And then we, <laughs> we actually read those off for the next 25 to 30 people. We had different people reading them off and it was kind of fun. But the letters just kept coming in and coming in. I mean, we sent out, I don't know, probably 150 NLIs, not knowing, not having any idea. We would hope to get 50, like you said, and, and 108 ended up coming. And, and that wasn't even some of our best players didn't come in. We didn't sign all 108 that day, but, but I mean, Donald Payne, he didn't join the program until, you know, the end of March. And so we, we continued to recruit during that time. And some of our better players uh, didn't, didn't decide to sign up uh, until later on that, that spring. I mentioned the two guys who were already in school here. How important were they to getting that whole process done? I mean, they had to basically be the entertainment chauffeurs for all of those kids as they came on campus. Well, uh, we actually had four players. Uh, two of them ended up not finishing football. Uh, and one is still working at, at, at facilities. Dan still working at facilities. But we had Fletcher Eldemeyer, Jacob Payne, um, Dan, and there was one other guy. And Patrick Cohn. And it, pardon me? Patrick Cohn. Patrick Cohn. Patrick, yes. Oh, my God. Patrick, yes. I can't believe I forgot him. He's, he's, I don't know, he's probably finished seminary school now. But anyway, and we had one young lady whose father was a strength coach as well, who actually married Dan, believe it or not. And so they were hosting every one of those kids. And so they were like, they were road warriors. They took every one of them out bowling or whatever it was that we had them do. And, uh, and they were great. And, and, you know, I, I wish, I wish Dan could have finished out. He, he had some financial issues and he had to, he had to go work, but he was, he could have been a very special player. Fletcher ended up starting for us. Jacob Payne was a captain. Yeah. Fletcher's now in med school and Jake Payne is now down in uh, Naples killing it in the financial world. Uh, so they've, they've gone on to do very good things. And I think Jake's wife is actually maybe more successful than he is. Uh, he'll never admit that, but, but uh, yeah, those guys, those guys, I can't, I can't thank them enough. They, they did all the groundwork at night and took care of all the recruits while we were talking to the parents at night and made sure they were on time and all those things. So yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's one of those things that, that while you're doing it, it's fun I'm, I'm not sure I'd like to do that anymore because anymore, that was that was quite an undertaking. Uh, I mean, we just didn't shut down. We just sleep. Sleep was sleep was a commodity. You, know, you caught sleep when you could. And that's just how it was. Fast forward to August and all those kids start showing up. Buildings not ready. No locker rooms. You got to get everybody fitted for equipment. You're you're trying to patch it all together and get these guys on the field for for fall. And and you practice for a year and. Uh, what, what what's going through your mind while you're going through all that and you're not able to talk about getting ready for games, which is the normal routine. You don't ever get into that normal game week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, routine that you have. Well, well, what we tried to do is we tried to make it as game-like as we could. And so we tried because our thought process was let's make sure that we give them an experience that's not going to be too different from what they experienced going forward. And so that we could see how they reacted. And frankly, <clears throat> give us an opportunity to find the glitches in what we're doing. Um, but yeah, we didn't 108 shows up and we don't have enough helmets. And so the first night we go out there, there's about six kids who didn't have helmets. And, and then, you know, the first, the first one-on-ones that we throw, 
you know, our quarterback throws a corner route, which is a route that goes up and then breaks toward the sideline at an angle. And we hadn't put the pads around the light poles. And Nico Morgato was the guy who was going for that pass and smashes right into the, uh, into the light pole. And of course he gets knocked out and I'm thinking, Oh my God, this is over before we even started. We're sued. It's over. It's done. And so the next day, I'll never forget, Kevin Jarenko, our equipment manager, had put the pads out, and he'd actually taped in a chalk, chalk line of where Nico had impaled himself on the on – the, which I thought was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. But, uh, <laughs> but it, was, uh, it, was, uh, it was quite an undertaking. And um, I can't uh, – you know, the, the response from the town was what was crazy because we had people out there. We had a night practice because it was so freaking hot, and – and there, it was, it blew up. I mean, I had guys filming my drills in my quarterback drills and I, dude, I got a, and he's right there. I mean, we actually had to finally tape and tape it off to keep people out of there. Cause it was crazy. And I think, I think the townsmen were very shocked about, um, about how organized we were and how we had everything going. I, I had a couple of people tell me, I, I can't believe how organized you guys look, like they've been practicing forever. And it was our first one. I remember, before our first scrimmage, well, <clears throat> we were talking to recruits and I was trying to make them and their families understand that there's going to be some glitches. Okay. It's a startup program. you got to roll with the punches. And I'm in the middle of my, my talk and I'm trying to think, okay, what can I do? And I said, for example, we may come out here and there may not be any goalposts. We don't need goalposts to get better. You got to stay focused on what our mission is and what we got to get done now. And we'll fix it as we go along, but there's going to be some glitches. Two weeks later, Jeff Altier, the AD, calls me and says, Roger, uh, we forgot to order goalposts. <laughs> so so I, stopped, I stopped actually predicting what was going to happen. But literally, our first scrimmage, the, the, the right upright on the goalposts were going up. Literally, we're scrimmaging at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. That morning, the goalpost is going up. So our kicker never kicked. So we had a little spare time. I remember going down to the, to the cleaning house, and uh, the clothes cleaning house, and they said, hey, you're the coach, aren't you? And I said, maybe. What do, what do you want? And you're killing us. I said, what do you mean I'm killing you? She goes, you're killing us. You're having practice. You're having your scrimmage at two o'clock in the afternoon. We can't come watch. We got to work. Why don't, why don't you move it to seven o'clock at night? And I said, you know, I can't do that now, but that's a great idea. We'll do it. So the next time we have this first, the second scrimmage at seven o'clock at night and, uh, <clears throat> and it was packed. I mean, someone, some of the kids had brought a pickup painted their bodies all up, tapped a keg in the back of the truck, pulled into the parking lot, and they're just getting hammered. There's people lined up all along the, the wrought iron fence out there with coolers, uh, launchers, and, and they're doing this for a practice. And I'm going, wow, this, uh-huh. this place could be pretty cool. And, uh, and then, of course, our kicker, who had not really kicked that much because the goalposts weren't up, he, he lines up for his first field goal, and <clears throat> he lets her go, and all of a sudden a minivan's coming like this, and boom, right into the minivan to – Football hits the minivans just driving by. So there's there's a lot of little things like that that went on that uh, you can't make up. One of the things I remember from those first practices is, you know, as the head coach at the time, you were also the quarterback's coach, and you had like 12 or 15 kids that were listed on the roster as quarterbacks. So you had a huge group trying to figure out who was going to be a quarterback. Yeah. Um, well, and, and again, we we erred on the side of inclusion, that's for sure. And, <laughs> And like J. Rowe, you know, he ended up he ended up going to be a wide receiver and ended up being a pretty productive sure. wide receiver. So we were looking we we're just looking for athletes at that time. Athletes. And Johnny Straw, who ended up being a tight end for us, who did a nice job at tight end, who was a quarterback. So 
that's always been one of my deals is to, is, you know, usually quarterbacks in high school are the best player on the team. And so sometimes they're not the best quarterback on the team once they get to college. So we always try to find guys who, if it doesn't work at quarterback, they can move. So in that first group of 108 players, you go through the fall and practice and scrimmage. At what point do you realize there is a guy out here that's playing at a different level? Well, we first figured out he was a different guy when he got upset and threw his helmet 35 yards because uh, he was mad at something right there. And so we said, we better get this guy under control a little bit. And, and then, of course, when he took his helmet off, he had he was an African-American, had bright orange hair. And, and so – Donald, Donald had a little personality to him, as we found out. But uh, he does. You know, really, when you don't know how good or bad you are when you're just practicing with each other. So, so what you do is you figure it out as you start to play opponents. And the very first game, as you know, we we took two days to finish because we had a lightning delay. So it took 56 years to get the program back and two days to finish the first game. And <clears throat> I remember we went down, scored our first touchdown. Rob Coggan caught a caught a corner right. route in the right hand side of the end zone. We scored the first touchdown in 56 years, and then we got to shut her down because of the rain. So we decided we're going to play the game. We do it on Sunday. And I, I've never been to a hotter game in my life. That Sunday was brutal in the afternoon. I mean, brutal. And the very first play, we had just kicked off, and Donald Payne broke through the line, sacked the quarterback, caused a fumble, returned it for a touchdown. That Sunday. And really set the tone for the game. And that's when – that's when I go, whoa, that's that's a pretty good play. And then he started making every play. You know, he 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 got in the doghouse one time. We're playing Birmingham Southern that year. And so I suspended him for the first for the first two quarters. And he comes in for I'm sorry, for the first quarter. And he comes in and proceeds to set a tackling record the next three quarters, had like two fumble recoveries and interception. I mean, it was unbelievable. And so I've I tried to figure out maybe I should just make him mad every time before he before he has to play. But uh but some of the things he was doing, making plays, he would be rushing from one side of the line of scrimmage and make the play all the way on the other hash. I mean, just just things he was doing was just so spectacular. And I think, you know, given the fact that we didn't have a lot of great players at that time, they, and what I mean by that is some of them developed into great players, but they were all freshmen or redshirt freshmen. Sure. So yeah. it gave him a chance to stand out among among guys who may not have been quite as uh, – didn't develop quite as early as he did in his in his career. I remember I tell the people the story all the time about that first game is we scored two touchdowns within about 14 seconds on the clock, and it took 18 hours to do it. <laughs> That's, I'm going to use that line, Ricky. That's a good one. I hadn't really thought about it, but you're right. Uh, the game I remember for Donald most, and it's probably the game that he's probably most known for, is the game at Campbell. Oh, that was unbelievable. Uh, just it's hard to put into words the kind of performance he put in that night. Well, and, and the play and the types of plays he made again, uh, again, go back and watch the film. And I know you went over him, you know, 23 tackles or something tied an NC a record, 22, whatever, 30, 30, like I said, 30. Um, <laughs> he, I mean, they, they were legit. They weren't padded. And he literally made the play running a play down. He wasn't blitzing. He just ran the play down from the other side for, a, for a two yard game. I mean, uh, just, just crazy. And I, I don't remember if that was the one, that he returned. No, that wasn't the wasn't. one. That was that the one. No, the, no, the other play that, that was not the one up at Campbell. We, we always used to play well at Campbell for whatever reason, and and I always felt like physically they had a much better team than us. I mean, physically they looked they looked apart, and uh, and so we end up 
we're, we're up 14 with like four minutes left in the game or something like that. And we end up squandering lead. They come back and tie it. And one of the persons that was responsible is Jeb uh, Boudreaux because we had a fourth down and then he hits a guy out of bounds and gets a personal foul and keeps the drive alive. And they go down to score and tie the game. And of course we had a pump block too. And some other things happen. <clears throat> so we go into overtime and I can remember just before the overtime, Jeb is sitting on the bench with his head down and just, just feeling like he's a mess. It's his fault. And I go, Jeb, look at me. I said, you're going to make a play to help us win this game. You need to get your head out of your ass and let's get going because you can't you forget about that. That doesn't matter. We'll correct that on Monday. And so he jumps back up <clears throat> and we, we win the toss in overtime. We go on defense first. And we shut them down in three plays. So they line up to kick a field goal. <coughs> and who else? Donald Payne breaks through, blocks the field goal. <coughs> and Jeb Boudreaux picks the ball up and takes off down the field. And runs out of gas at about the 12 or 10. And he starts staggering around. He looks for someone. And Cootie's a ladder to Donald Payne, who Donald Payne catches it and runs it in the end zone and scores the touchdown to win the game. And, of course, that made the ESPN top 10 uh, that that week. And – to see that, but, but that's what football is all about. You know, you can make a really bonehead play, but if you just persevere, keep your head up and just keep playing hard, good things are going to happen. And I can remember Jeb after the game, just, just so excited that he had an opportunity to make up for the mistake he made. And he learned a very valuable lesson there about got to play through your mistakes. And the thing I remember about that game that people don't remember is that on the very first opening kickoff of the game, we kick off and Donald's going down on coverage. And they cheap shot him out of bounds, blindside him, cost him the game the next week. So he plays that entire game and and is so banged up he couldn't play the next week and made, I don't know, 17, 18 tackles and, and then scores the winning touchdown. Just a testament to the kind of kid and the kind of performer he was and is. Oh, oh there's no question. He he was he's special. But that's why that's why he's making money at the game. That's exactly right. Show your Stetson spirit and get your green on with officially licensed tees, sweats, hoodies, and more. Go to www.shopgohatters.com. All your Hatters gear is just a click away. Visit www.shopgohatters.com today. So you go from one Donald P to another Donald P. Uh, uh, Donald Parham and the success he had, whole different kind of player, Guy that didn't play much in high school and was a kind of guy that you have you you take a lot as somebody that's a you project to see where they're going to be and boy did he turn out well. Yeah, we recruited him as a defensive lineman to start with He's from Lakeland and uh, Charles Huff was our was our defensive line coach and he saw this long lanky kid and he thought you know if this kid develops he's going to be pretty good and and you know he he wasn't really developed when he got there we we were going to redshirt him which we did and. <clears throat> he was running a scout team offense and we had really, again, we needed a tight end. So he was playing out of the scout team and he had unbelievable ball skills. He just, he could just go up and get the ball anywhere. So we decided to keep him a tight end. And, and I think the light really went on for Donald when, for Donald Parham, when Donald Payne signed and actually made the NFL. And then I think it became, wow, this is actually something that could possibly happen. And, uh, and so he ends up having a great senior year. Um, and, and I would argue that, you know, bringing in Stan Clayton and, and uh, Scott Salick on the offensive side was huge. I think they did a great job of, of jump-starting the offense and get it going, and, and I got the heck out of the way of stuff and, and started 
doing more head coaching stuff rather than offensive coordinating, which, which was take, I just didn't have enough time to do it all. And I had two good people that I trusted. And so they came on and really utilized Donald in a way that he hadn't been used. You know, they split him out. He's a matchup nightmare. And, and uh, they utilized his talents to, uh, to really help us to that eight and two season that we had. Got to find yourself on the recruiting trail now with now two guys in the NFL being able to talk to recruits about, you know, there is a path to professional football from, from Stetson if you come to Stetson. But also you got to really take special interest when you see a guy named Donald in, the, in, in your recruiting travels. Well, you got to be named Donald. You got the last name has to start with a P to be an All-American here. And, right. and Donald Parham was a consensus All-American. I mean, yep. he was from everybody, led the nation as a tight end and, and catches. So what he what he did was was remarkable, uh, and, and I'm not I'm not belittling the efforts of his teammates that helped him get to that point. I mean, Colin McGovern delivered the ball to him, and the offensive line blocked for Colin and all those things. But but he certainly made the most of it. And I think uh, that time in the XFL that he put in uh, was huge to help him develop it. But you you also don't want to forget about two other players, you know Zane Smith who ended up playing for the <clears throat> for the uh, XFL team in uh, Green Bay, and then um, uh, Davian Balk, who played for our arena team in Nebraska, in Kearney, Nebraska, of all places. Uh, so we've actually had four players play professionally uh, in seven years that we've been had the program back. And uh, Davion Belk still very important to the program and his role in the admissions office, and he's got to be a guy you lean on and uh, helping to evaluate and get new recruits in. Well, he, that's that's absolutely correct. He does a great job with that. And the other thing is he's always there for our defensive lineman as a tutor. And he'll come over <clears throat> on a Saturday afternoon when he's got nothing going on and, and you know, teach our guys footwork, teach our guys uh, moves or things like that to make them very effective pass rushers. So let's talk a little bit about recruiting and, and where we are with the incoming group for the coming year. Um, obviously, with the way things are at Stetson, you can't announce a signing class when everybody else announces it. You have to wait till everybody pays their deposit. So you're still in the process of making sure all these guys uh, get get done and get in. When do you feel like you're done recruiting for the coming year? Well, really, you're you're never done with the portal. With the, with the transfer portal now, you're always on that to see if you can pick up a, a player who may not be happy where he's at, or it's just not working out for whatever reason. So that never really ends, and and when one cycle ends, you're right into the next cycle. I mean, as I said earlier, when we started, we're, uh, we're in the middle of, of evaluating kids for the 2021 class already. And, and, uh, you know, we've, we got a couple offers out there that you're seeing on, on Twitter right now that, uh, that we feel those guys have what it takes to play here. We've got to get them accepted and we've got to get the finances to work out. But, uh, so, so it, so it really never shuts down as far as for the 2020 class, we're still waiting on two guys for their deposits. We got on them late. Uh, they were kind of missed in the process. And so once those guys get in, we'll be able to announce. Really excited about the incoming group we have, though. Uh, how active – you mentioned the portal. How active are you in, in seeking some of those – I mean, you had one last year in, in a tight end. Uh, active in seeking those grad transfers because there are going to be a lot of them out there. Well, well, it, it takes a special kind of kid. Um, the grad transfers that we've had, like Max Draper you talked about, uh, he was able to get an internship a GA ship in the graduate school. So he's working and that helps offset the cost because most of the guys in the transfer portal are on full rides. Right. And so it's hard to say, okay, give up the full ride and come out to our place and pay 30,000. You know, that that's, you gotta, you gotta find exactly the right kid to do that. And then the other thing is 
you know, getting the credits transfer to make sure, you know, once a kid gets beyond a sophomore year, <clears throat> it's hard to get him eligible as a transfer because our school doesn't take a lot of credits. And so, but, but we're always active in the portal and always trying to find uh, people who, who want another opportunity, maybe play in a state that, where it doesn't snow every day. And, but if, uh, if those kids are kids that have already received their undergraduate degree and still have eligibility, that's a different game. Well, it's, it's, we, it's too prompt. You're right. You're talking about the graduate transfer, which that's a different deal than the guys who just want to transfer portal. Now with Jacksonville this year, we had four kids transfer in from Jacksonville. Uh, some of their, some of their more experienced players couldn't transfer because of the, because of the uh, credit deal, right. but we're always looking for those opportunities. And I think recently, I mean, it's interesting because I talk to recruits now, <coughs> excuse me for next year. They don't realize that we just started the program seven years ago. Uh-huh. And what they're seeing is eight and two and seven and four. And now all of a sudden, Hey, you guys have a great program. So, so I think success begets success and, and hopefully we can keep that momentum going. A lot of the schools I've seen, especially the Ivy league schools, they're not honoring that extra year for those, for those super seniors. So those kids are looking for places to play. Have you been able to reach out and, and connect with some of those kids? They have some, some kids have reached out for us. Now that the super senior deal for football is not going to be as big a deal because it's the fall sport. And so we're not going to have those guys much like baseball and, and some of the spring sports are, but, but certainly uh, we've been approached from places like Northern uh, uh, North Carolina, uh, Northwestern, Vanderbilt, some of those kids have expressed an interest in coming to play here, especially since they've seen our kids have the success at the professional level, and they know that if they come here and do a good job, they, they have a shot to get looked at. So how are you keeping focus for the kids on their conditioning work? Because that's what they would be doing right now all the time anyway. And especially, you know, summer is so important for football and conditioning. Now they can't be here and can't be in the weight room with, with our, our strength coach, Coach Wateska. They've got to figure out a way to do it on their own. Well, we've given them alternate workouts for those who don't have gyms. So body weight workouts, push-ups, set-up, pull-ups, those types of footwork drills, that type stuff. And so uh, our strength and conditioning program is all on the internet anyway. And so they have it on their phone. They have their adjustments. If they don't have weights, they can do this. And so, again, Coach Wateska has done a great job of getting that going. But but you're right. That's going to change how we approach our re-engagement into football once we're able to come back because a lot of these guys haven't been, haven't just haven't maintained the strength uh, that they normally would if they'd been working out. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm an optimist. I'm hoping science catches up with this virus, but, you know, we're hoping that a July 1st, at least being able to get on campus and get in a situation where you can work out while maintaining your social distancing. uh, Hopefully that can come to fruition. The other part of that is you miss spring practice and spring practice is a time of the year where you do most of your teaching, a lot of your installation of everything. And, and you didn't get a chance to do that. How much longer do you think you're going to need or will, can you get it all done in the normal length of time or do you need more time? Well, I mean, it gets down to, I I think it gets down to how do they want to do the season? Do they want a complete season? Do they want an abbreviated season? Do they want a season in the spring? and do the, the spring stuff from last year in the fall. I think that all gets down to uh, whatever the NC2A decides. And I, it, my understanding is the NC2A is looking at it from when are we going to open school first and then football second. So if, if we operate school first, uh, you know, we play a game in like 
16 days or something like that once school starts. Can we get ready in that time? Well, we certainly won't be as ready as, as if they were on campus all the time working out. I think probably you need seven weeks. I mean, ideally, because, <clears throat> because of the nature of our game and the high impacts and everything, you need about 25 practices to get ready for your first game. But you also have to get your body ready for those 25 practices. And that's where you need about, I think, about three weeks there. I could be talked into six, but I think seven would be ideal. Get about three weeks of lifting, conditioning to get your body ready for the actual training you have to do to get ready for the game. And I think I think that's what everyone's trying to figure out is how we can get that done. And obviously, I'm sure you're tracking what, you know, the SEC is going to lead the way and whatever happens. I mean, it's going to be – the way the way college football is, everybody kind of follows the leader, and they're the leader. So I'm sure you're, you're tracking what what's going on, and what conversations are happening in the SEC. Um, yeah, and I think I think yeah, FBS football is going to going to dictate what happens. And, and again, because most athletic departments are are dependent upon the football money coming in. So I think I think I think we will have a season some point in time. What it's going to look like, I'm not sure. I would argue that. The fan being in the stands for our game is different than the NBA and the and the NFL. The NFL is really more of a TV game. Sure. Um, where our that energy and that stuff having the fans around and those ticket sales are huge uh, for what we do. And so I think I think we have to approach it a little bit differently than maybe the professional leagues have to. Uh, with that said, I could foresee, you know, playing an abbreviated schedule. <clears throat> I could see you know, testing fans as they come in, forcing masks, social distancing in the, in the stands, that type of stuff uh, to make sure that, because to me, how can the NC2A say it's okay to practice football, but it's not okay to be in school? You know, that, that the optics of that looks like crap. So, you know, Purdue, and I can't remember the other school yesterday came out and said, hey, we're going uh, and we're going to social distance there. I think that's probably I th- more and more, uh, I think as testing becomes more available and as uh, the personal protection devices become more available, I think other schools will make that decision, but we still have a lot of time. Uh, again, I go back to how fast the science has moved to this point. And, and again, I'm an optimistic guy and I'm, I'm a scientist. So I believe in science. Um, you know, we still have three months before we have to really do anything crazy. And so I think, I think within that time, we'll figure a way to manage uh a way to have football and frankly, a way to be back in college. We've talked about during this podcast, a couple of guys that have gone on from Stetson football that are in the medical field. One in particular that uh, I'm going to talk to on Saturday is Jordan Sabo, Mm -hmm. who is in his company is involved in fighting the coronavirus. What can you tell me about what you know he's doing and, and other guys that may be involved in some of this? Well, Jordan comes to mind because he's actually running a lab that's that's developing a test, a home test that you can do and, and trying to make that more, uh, uh, give it more efficacy and, and, and also make sure that it's available for people and mass producing. But, but I mean, Jordan, that's not surprising because when Jordan was here, he was a walk-on. He, he, he dedicated himself every day. I can remember him practicing for six weeks with a dislocated shoulder or a partially, partially torn ACL, or not ACL, but uh, uh, AC joint. And he was in pain the whole time. He never missed a practice. He got a big third down catch in one of our conference games to extend a drive. And actually we went down and scored to win the game. And so uh, I got to tell you, Jordan's toughness, his commitment to excellence, and the fact that he's running 
running a team is not a surprise at all. And, and frankly, if I'm the coronavirus, I'm scared because he's the type of kid who who is exactly what you want doing these kinds of things. And, and that's what makes our job, I think, so gratifying is, you know, Fletcher Eldemeyer, one of the first guys in our program is in medical school right, right. now. Uh, Glenn Adesoji, who was a corner for us, just got into Temple Medical School. And so that's those are exactly the type of young men that we're training and that we're we're getting involved and and they're going to go on to do great things. And I think uh, that's that's the kind of profile that we're lucky enough to be able to attract the place. On and, and Stetson is a unique place for any, any student, but football in particular, because of the of the environment and, and the closeness of the, you know, the coaching staff and how everybody works together and, and to get the thing going. Because it's still a new a new program, so there's still a lot of firsts that can happen, and you can still be a part of building this program into, you know, you still got to be the first to beat San Diego. You still got to be the first to win a conference championship. There's still a lot of firsts out there for for athletes, and that's attractive. I certainly appreciate you bringing that up, Ricky. <laughs> um, but you're right. But you're right. Yes, those are the firsts that we need to do. And I think one of the one of the things that I tell recruits is. You know, I, I can't point to a, a, a recent tradition. We don't have them. But here's the deal. If you come here, you can help us make one. And that experience you're going to have helping us make a tradition is going to be so much dramatically different than going someplace who has a great tradition and you got to wait three years to get on the field and do anything. The impact you're going to have here is going to be greater. And, and the satisfaction you get from that is going to be more long-lived. And I think it will it will stimulate stories that you want to tell your grandchildren in 40 years that you're going to like telling those stories if you're part of this thing. And I think luckily over the last three to four years, we found kids who want to do that and found kids who are, are very into it. And I think, and again, it goes back to really the simplicity of our culture and what we're about. And it goes back again to the Navy SEALs. We worry about two things, the mission and the team. Complete the mission, take care of the team. And our mission has two parts, get better every day, make someone else better every day. It's really that simple. And, and we're, we're starting to attract kids um, who absolutely believe in that. And, and, and by doing that, they're getting it better every day. I know every recruiting class you've brought in, there have been some standout players who've developed into really great players. But as a whole, it seems like every year, the whole group is better. You find, you find that being a little stronger, a little better each year in every recruiting class that come in is you, you, See that as well? Yes. And, and I think what happens is we've always had good players among our recruiting class. Now we have more good players throughout the recruiting right. class. You know, so Donald Payne, I would argue, one of the best players we've ever had. And I don't, it's going to be hard to top what he did. Sure. With that said, we're getting more players within each class that are more and more like Donald Payne. And, and I think that's, we've done it in increments because we're not, we're not going to cheat. And, and frankly, it's a unique profile. They've got to be able to get into school. They've got to be able to afford school. They've got to be able to play at the Division One level. And they're going to have to want to be the best in everything they do because that's what we hold them accountable to do. And, and now we're getting kids who seek us out because they want that kind of experience. And, and I think, frankly, going back to how we choose the captains and the leadership stuff that we're doing is, is really catching a lot of eyes and parents' eyes and families' eyes. They want to be part of that stuff because they understand that that going forward, we're trying to create the leaders of our society and the leaders of our country. And I get all that sounds a little Pollyanna and possibly a little corny, but I am the corniest coach in America and I'll admit to that. But, but I think that's exactly what we're doing. And every day that we 
exists, so to speak, is dedicated to doing those two things, complete the mission and take care of the team. When your travels take you to DeLand, count on Hampton Inn and Suites DeLand to deliver value, consistency, and thoughtful service. Ask about our new premium rooms. Book your next day in advance and save up to 15% off the already great rates. I've got a few questions I've been asking everybody that I've talked to. So I'm going to, we've covered a lot of the topics already, but um, what books are you reading now? And who are some of your favorite authors? I'm reading, I'm reading two books right now. And I got a third works. I got, I'm reading peak that was written by a Florida state professor talking about how people uh, achieve peak performance and, and how to practice to do that. And what, what uh, kinds of practice, have the greatest effect on getting you to your peak. So that's one of the books. The other book I'm reading is Malcolm Gladwell's Talking to Strangers. And looking at, I've always been fascinated with Malcolm Gladwell, one of my favorite authors. Um, and he um, he looks at how it's interesting that humans, human nature is to naturally believe people. And we're very good at telling people, at looking at people and knowing when they're telling the truth we're really bad at understanding when they're lying to us because sure. a lot of times we don't want to believe they're lying to us. <coughs> and in the recruiting game, that's huge because everybody has an opportunity to lie about how good they are or what they really want. And so I think I, I'm always trying to pick up skills like that. And then there's a third book. Uh, I believe it's called, it is what it is. And, or you know, uh, it takes what it takes is what the name of it. And it's about uh, the mental part of the game and how to make sure that you're utilizing your preparation, not the physical side, but the middle side of preparation. And that's the third book that I'm, that I'll be starting here as soon as I'm done with the Gladwell book. What is your most fa- uh, treasured childhood memory? <laughs> as old as I am, I can't remember when I was a child. Um, <laughs> I, I guess, I guess it would be, and I'm going to, I'm going to kind of lump this into a, a bunch of memories, but, but our time on my grandfather's ranch, going out and being part of that. I'll never forget that, um, you know, I was the oldest of, of our three siblings. And so I don't remember, I was probably 12 years old and we were driving out to my grandfather's ranch and, and we were taking a route that went by their mailbox and their mailbox was like three miles away from their house. They had to drive over and get it. And so I had been kind of beaten up on my sister and brother pretty much all the time and raising heck and my dad and finally had enough. And he was a, he was a really patient guy, but when you pushed him to the edge, <clears throat> he was going to react. So we're right by the mailbox, and he stopped the car, and he said, we're making you walk to the house. We're making you walk to the house. I'm thinking, this is no big deal. I've ridden a motorcycle over here. I'm fine. I know the road. It's no big deal. Okay, Dad, let me out. And just as he pulls away, he rolls down the window and goes, watch out for the snakes. I'm deathly afraid of snakes. <laughs> and so now I'm crying. Now I'm, I'm, oh my God, I'm going to see every stick that I saw, every big piece of grass I saw was a snake to me. And it was the most torturous three miles I've ever walked in my life to get back to that house. But I'll, I'll, that's the one that kind of sticks in my mind that what a great, because he knew, he knew that I thought this was easy and he knew exactly what to say. He wrote Which down, I'll never forget as he turned away, I could see the grin on his face that he was trying to trying to hide in man. And then, and the other one would be when we were going out again to the to the cattle, and uh, huh, 
it was, it was in January and it was cold. It was like 20 degrees, 10 degrees, whatever it was. And my grandfather's ranch was about 8,500 acres. So we didn't have horses. We herded cattle in on motorcycles so we could cover all the ground that they were at. So we're going out there and the wind's blowing that day. And of course, it was, my dad was inside the truck. I was out throwing the bales out. So I was the one freezing my tail off. So we're coming in there and not, every morning the cattle would come down out of the valleys to be fed. Well, today they didn't come down because they wanted to stay there and stay warm. They didn't want the wind to get them. So I'm thinking, this is great. I'm not good. We're not getting, they're not down here. We don't have to feed them. We're going back. I'm staying warm all day. And I'll never forget. My dad looks over and goes, we got to get them damn cows out of those draws. Is what we call the valley draws. And I said, okay, he goes, go get on the motorcycle. So I'm, I'm kicking that 125 Yamaha and I'm begging, don't start. Don't start. Of course it does. Now I'm riding a motorcycle and it's about 10 degrees. Okay. Oh. And I'm going out. And, and, and when, when you talk about a brain freeze, I mean, yeah. my nose hairs were freezing to the side of my face. My, my hands were, I had to pry them off. I was never so cold. I remember looking over at my dad who was driving in our blazer and he has the window down. He's laughing his tail off because he's got the heat turned up, but I had to go down and, and, you know, drive Chase the cattle down to get fed. And when you talk, but, but it taught me, Hey, someone depends on you. You got to find a way to do it. Those cattle had to be fed that morning or it wasn't going to be good. And uh, you do what it takes. You do what it takes to, to do, get your job done. And I'll never, I'll never forget that one. Now that was, that was whew, chilly. I bet. I bet. What are your game day superstitions? Usually the jacket I wear, I, I, I try not to be superstitious because I know the jacket that I wear shouldn't have any effect, but if I get a lot more superstitious when I'm not as sure we're better than the team we're playing. So I'm looking for that extra edge. So one of the things, <clears throat> one of the things I'll wear the same jacket and tie at times. Uh, I'm not above doing that. Uh, I'm not above having a certain routine on Friday. Uh, Cause I, I <clears throat> if we travel, I like to get there early. I like to get a workout in. I like to get a workout in in the morning before the game to get some of the adrenaline out because during the game, and I, I've checked my watch, I'll get in like 24, 27,000 steps on the sidelines. Yeah, and you're so, moving pretty good. Yeah, my, my adrenaline, because I can't play anymore, I'm, I'm a little excitable. And so uh, I try to get all that stuff out so I can relax and just, you know, hopefully enjoy the game. How do you like to spend your time away from football, school, work? Well, I like to play golf. You know, and I don't play enough of it. Um, I like I like doing things around the house. Like like I put in all the baseboard on our house. To me, it's what I call mindless therapy. It's therapy for me because usually when I'm doing my job, thousands of people are watching me do it, and they all think they can do it better than me, especially Monday morning. And so it's nice to just be out here. And I don't mind the hard work. You know, um, um, so I'll, so I'll do that. I like uh, I like working out. And generally what happens is the more stressed I get, the more ways I try to find ways to work out. Uh, I'm kind of, I'm kind of a nut job that way. I don't feel like, I don't feel like if I'm, my whole thing is if you look at my five strengths in strength finder, number one's competitive. And so, <clears throat> I mean, I'm to the point where I'll change the rules so I can find a way to win. And, and if I can't win, I don't want to play the game type. You're, deal. Not, cheating, you're not trying. And two is exactly. <laughs> and the only cheating if you get caught. And, and then number two is um, achievement. And I wake up every morning, whether I'm on vacation or not, and I have to achieve something every day. 
my slate is clean every day. And I really get, I really get upset with myself or feel the day's lost unless I feel like I'm getting better at something. Even if it's just like this morning, I already went down and, and ran stadium steps and I'm always looking to get one more in and, or push myself a little bit better. So I think those two things kind of drive me. And I like, I tell you, I like, I like spending time at Crawford with my parents. They're both 83. They're still there. And, and my daughter's still out in Nebraska working for Blue Cross Blue Shield. So getting out there and spending time with them and, and doing the family things like, like our whole family golfs. So getting out there and playing golf with all of them and that stuff is, is good. Besides Tom Osborne, who's the most famous person you've ever met? And when and where was that? Remember Jessica Flowers that got Billy, uh, that got the TV evangelist, Jerry Falwell in trouble? Yes. Well, we were, I was on a plane. I was going from Las Vegas to Los Angeles. I was recruiting. And I had to get on this plane, and it was a late ad. I had to change my flight. So I'm sitting there, and I was really on the last row of the plane. And all of a sudden, she had just done the, she had just done the video with Sam Kennison called Wild Thing. And she, mm -hmm. was, she was in that video with it. <laughs> so this unbelievably gorgeous woman comes up and sits down right next to me on my right. And then I got another guy who's sitting to my left. I'm in the middle. So, and so we strike up a conversation about Sam Kinison and, and, and that stuff. Well, of course I'm thinking I'm very suave. Well, the guy next to me is just going into drug rehab. Okay. So he starts talking across me about all his problems and how life sucks and everything. I'm going, dude, you're rooting this opportunity. Not that I have an opportunity, but just come on now. Of course, she was the very nice person that she was and, and administered to his needs, you know, as far as pumping him up and everything. So that, that was one of them. Um, you know, some Joe Paterno, you know, he was a Brown graduate being around him. Um, most of this, most times in the sporting world, uh, <clears throat> Phil Sims, you know, Phil Sims is a, is a alumnus of Moorhead State. Yeah. And so we had a conversation about Moorhead and how they said, Phil, how do you allow your name on that freaking weight room out there? It looks like crap. And so we had a long conversation about that. Um, Chris Collingsworth, you know, he was, he was, uh, um, he was, he's an announcer, obviously. And he was one of the clients of that booster club president I talked about at 16W Marketing. Yeah, he's a Florida guy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then, um, You know, I'm trying to think. Other other than that, you know, <clears throat> Don Rumsfeld, I guess when he was, you got to figure as much time as you spend in airports, you've you've seen and and run across a lot of people. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm really I'm actually very shy. You know, I, I really don't like to be out in front of people that much. I'd rather just sit back and let someone else do it. So I don't. Unfortunately, I don't do enough of hey, who are you? Who who? go up and introduce myself. That's, that's probably not me. Although what I try to do is, uh, you know, I think one of the biggest compliments you can give anybody is, Hey, I really like the work you do. You don't have to say anymore that I really, I really like your work. You don't have to go on. Oh, I loved you in this. You know, I don't Not Maybe it's because I want to be cool or what I don't know, but I just, you know, people get doited on for what they do a lot of times. And I'm, I'm not, that's not me, but I do think, the subtle things that you say, hey, I really like your work. Uh, to me, that's even more sincere than, oh, can I have your autograph? Can I do all these things? Yada, yada, yada. 
So we'll run through a few quick questions that are kind of silly, but we'll run through them anyway. What's your favorite back breakfast cereal? Honey Nut Cheerios. Who's your favorite cartoon character? Bugs Bunny. Favorite superhero? Okay, it used to be Batman. I got to be honest with you, because the DC comics, but I'm, I'm Spidey, Spider-Man, always a smart ass. And I always loved his smart ass ways. And the thing about Marvel is they, they wrote their characters to be more human and have human flaws. Peter Parker was always having girlfriend problems or what else, which we could relate to. Batman was, didn't have a superpower. He was just the best, the world's best detective or whatever it was. Now, he was rich. He was rich. I guess that, that is. That was a superpower, power. yeah. So, so those are the ones that, that stick with me. So if you could have a superpower, what would it be and why? Fly. Oh, I'd love to fly. That, that, that to me would be the ultimate. Um, I've had dreams about flying. There's no question. I, I would used to take towels and put them around my neck and act like I was flying around the house when I was really young. Uh, <clears throat> I can remember even, even my grandmother when we were out at the ranch and, uh, you know, I was really young. She, uh, she punched me in the face one time because, because she was being Catwoman and I was trying to be Batman and she punched me in the face and knocked me off the couch one time. She's like, Hey, you better be able to take it. So, uh, Todd was in her face about being Batman or whatever it was. I can't remember what it was. But What's your guilty pleasure? Chocolate malt. I love chocolate malt, and I don't stop with the small ones. I'll get the 32-ounce at Rodeo Whip every time. And I fire that. I rifle that thing down in about two minutes, man. That's love it. Love it. What's your favorite kind of cookie? Chocolate chip. And chocolate oatmeal, actually chocolate oatmeal chip, because you're getting a little fiber in that one. But but we used to have, when I was at Princeton, every time we won games, the coaches would, would bake the team cookies, and we'd bring them in. So my wife has a, a chocolate chip oatmeal recipe with a little bit of cinnamon that's just phenomenal. Love Chocolate chips is the deal. I'm, raisins, out. Nuts and stuff, out. I'll eat nuts like this. I don't like them in brownies. I don't like them in anything else. PC or Mac? What's that? PC or Mac computer? Well, I have a PC, but I love them. I love how Mac does things. And I like the fact that it's harder to, the Mac is harder to hack, so to speak. But, but I mean, I, I got a PC Dell and I got an iPhone and uh, I'm kind of a creature of habit. I'm learning new stuff, but I'm becoming that old curmudgeon who doesn't want to, doesn't want to change how he does things, unfortunately. Uh, where, where would you want to go for a dream vacation? Well, I'd love to see Australia. <clears throat> I would love to see Australia. I, we, my wife and I, for our 30th wedding anniversary, went to Europe and did a cruise, a European cruise, where we started and finished in Rome. And Italy was just absolutely good. I'd like to go to London as well. And there's this from small town kid who didn't care he ever left the country. You know, I, but going on that cruise, I, my eyes got exposed to, um, you know, the, the European deal and how how the architecture is just they did all those things, built all the church without all the big cranes, without all the other stuff. How did they just do that? That That's crazy. But I would love to go to Australia. Who was your celebrity crush when you were 12? Well, I'm not going to say Raquel Welch because I didn't write. I, I knew of her. Probably, probably um, Barbara Feldon on Get Smart. She was agent 99. And uh, she was she was probably the one. 
you know, and then when I when I was probably a little bit older, you know, Charlie's Angels, Farrah Fawcett wasn't bad. Although I like Jacqueline Smith on that show too. What's your favorite movie or movies? You know, my wife and I have one, and and, and I'm going back a ways. Um, Ghost with Patrick Swayze. I thought that that was well. It had a number of different things in it, but at the end of the movie, um, as he's as he's going to what I presume is heaven. Uh, he, he makes a statement. Um, you get to take all your love with you. Right. So that, that would be the, the probably movie that sticks in my mind. Now there are some more recent ones that I'd like to watch, but, but the significance of that one to me was special. What's your favorite Christmas movie? Oh God. Probably the Grinch. You know, I thought, I thought Jim Carrey did an unbelievable job in that and and you know to to master the acting of all the expressions and the body language and everything that he does and to know that a lot of it was ad-libbed um was was remarkable so i so that's the one probably that that i like the most what tv show or shows are you binging on right now during this time all right we're in homeland right now and we got the last episode ever and i'm i'm hearing i'm not gonna like the end and so i've been avoiding it for the Usually I watch Homeland right as soon as it comes out. I've been avoiding it for two days because I don't know if I'm going to like the ending. Ray Donovan. I've kind of gotten into Ray Donovan. I'm into Bosch, too. On uh, I like detective shows. Yeah. So on, on Amazon Prime, they've got Bosch. I've, I've gotten into that. Ozark absolutely is outstanding. I started watching that. Yeah, that's that one is is really good. Those are probably the ones that that most recently that we've binged. What was your first concert? When and where was that? <clears throat> I went to ACDC and Aerosmith. ACDC opened up for Aerosmith in Rapid City, South Dakota. That was the closest place. We had to drive 90 miles to get to a concert because we were so small. And uh, I didn't hear for like four days afterwards. I mean, it was crazy. Aerosmith was nuts. And then the other one was my brother had a huge loved kiss and so uh, we went to a Kiss concert right after that as well, and that was that was pretty good. Who or what are you listening to now, music wise? Yeah, no, I've gotten on Pandora, Luke Luke Bryant Radio, and uh, you know I've, I've gone to more of the country stuff. Although, although I'll put on I'll put on some um, some rap sometimes, you know, just because because I got to keep up with what the kids are listening to, and I get to hear it all the time in the locker room. Anyways, we're warming up, um, but if I'm working out. I'll, I'll put on Luke Bryant, Carrie Underwood, uh, Sam Hunt. Um, uh, Luke Combs is killing it right now. Everything, everything he sings turns gold. I mean, it's, he, he's just killing it. And, uh, and so that's, that's more what I'm at. Country's the new pop, you know, yeah. and that's, and that's really what I'm, if, if I'm putting it on, that's probably what I'm listening to. I know you've killed some dance moves in the locker room after games. What's that? You've killed some dance moves in the locker room after a couple of I games. suck. I suck dancing. Don't even tell me that. I suck. So I try to, I try to look like I'm doing something. I, uh, you should delete every, every tape you have of me dancing, but I, I like to have fun with the kids. Yeah. But what, but uh, what game show, huh? game show would you want? What game show would you want to be on? Oh, great show. Uh, probably you want to be a millionaire. Okay. I need all the lifelines I can get. You only get three. Um, you know, the old, the old game show that I really liked was Password. Okay. You know, that, that one was on for a long time. I used to watch it when I came home from school 
back when I was in grade school. Uh, I always thought that was funny, but, but probably I'm not smart enough for Jeopardy. <clears throat> so that's why I do something I can figure it out. Where's your favorite place to go for dinner? Well, the, the, what we, if you're asking me what we eat a lot of a Chick-fil-A, we eat a lot of them because it's easy. The salads are right there and it's right down the road. There's a place in Daytona called Millie's and they have a steak covered with, um, with Cajun shrimp sauce. That is unbelievable. I've had it one time that, and it's a little hole in the wall place over there too, but that would be, that would be a place I'd love to go. What's your go-to karaoke song? I don't karaoke. <laughs> never been, never been tempted to sing, huh? Well, well, I, I used to be able to sing. Now with all my screaming and yelling, my voice is shot. But my, my family is very musical. My sister can play the piano and bass guitar. My dad was in a band and plays guitar. Um, my mom could play the piano. And, and on my dad's side, there's been a lot of people who've, who've been in bands and done things like that. So, so, uh, but no, I don't, I don't karaoke now. I may, I may sing in the shower, but uh, no one's listening to me. So on social media, have you advanced past uh, Twitter and Facebook to Instagram and TikTok yet? TikTok, I have no idea what that is other than than uh, tic-tac-toe. That's what I think of. Instagram, I'm starting to get there. But I'm one of those guys that I don't need everyone to know where I'm at. I don't need I don't need to say, hey, I'm going down to the grocery store today now. And I don't need to post pictures of myself having a good time. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in the limelight. And when I say limelight, don't misunderstand me, but <clears throat> I'm out in public all the time. Right. I need my private time. And I, I really uh, try to guard that. So I know you, you like to play golf. Name three people living or dead you'd want to play around with. Jack Nicholas, For sure. Uh, Dennis Norman. I think Dennis Norman would be a blast. And Tiger Woods. You know, that's the hard part with Larry. I mean, he knows all those guys. Yeah. Well, he doesn't have to be Tiger golfers Tiger. you can play around with either. What's that? You don't, don't, don't necessarily have to pick golfers to play with. Oh, well, I mean, those would be the guys that come off the top of my head. Um, if you're, if you're talking about people I would like to meet alive or dead, yeah, I would, I would love to meet Abraham Lincoln. Cause I, I thought, I thought as a president, he did something unbelievable. Um, the other one that I, that I think is underrated is John Adams. And I think, I think he was, he was not liked by a lot of people from what I read, but as far as, and there was a lot of politics in what he did. He he always felt like he had to prove people, prove something. But but his intellect was was amazing. Yeah. No and, and you know the other one, Bill Clinton. And, I, and I'll tell you why I say that. I thought whether you agree or disagree with any of the politics, he could have been, and probably was one of the most intelligent presidents we've ever had. I mean, he could he walks in a room and everybody everybody thinks they know him by the time he leaves. I wish he wouldn't have made that transgression. We're all human. All right. um, but as far as, I mean, when he was here, the balance that he was in the budget was balanced. I mean, gasoline was, he benefited from the fact that gasoline was way down, but some of the things and, and what he did were I, his intellect. And I thought his talent level was remarkable. I, I wish he could have had a little more discretion. Well, that leads us to the last question. Like the president, when he walks into a room, hail to the chief is played. You know, professional wrestlers go to the ring. They've got their theme song. What's your theme song every time you walk into a room? 
probably the Black Eyed Peas tonight's going to be a good night. Good way. Good way to end it. We'll come back and, and talk again as we get closer to football and we'll talk more football. But uh, this has been great. I've really enjoyed it. Me too. Me too. Thanks, Ricky. All right. Well, the, we, we've had uh, Coach Roger Hughes on for an episode of Hatter Chatter, the podcast. We hope you enjoyed this and tune in again next time when we'll bring you somebody else from Stetson Athletics to, uh, to talk about all of the things in their lives. So uh, thanks, and uh, we'll see you next time. Insight Credit Union is a proud partner of Stetson University Athletics. Insight has been bringing better banking to Central Florida for nearly 85 years. Insight Credit Union is your local go-to for lower rates on auto and other loans, credit cards, and more. Insight Credit Union and you, better together. Once again, I'd like to thank our corporate sponsors for making our podcast and everything we do in Stetson Athletics possible. First of all, for our podcast, our title sponsor, Insight Credit Union. Our other sponsors for Stetson Athletics include Bud Light, Coca-Cola Florida, The Weston in Lake Mary, Total Comfort, Hampton Inn, Morningstar Storage Solutions, Geico, Main Street Bank, Imageworks, Orlando Sanford International Airport, Florida Orthopedic Associates, and the Alliance Community. Thank you to all of our corporate sponsors.